Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. This marks our final official Eon watch along this week. Um, James Bond has been busy learning his wine terminology, uh, terminology and he learned this week that Nebuchadnezzar is equivalent to 20 bottles of wine, which is also equivalent of a quiet night in watching a view to kill with Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your film and host, James Page from MI6 and the magazine MI6 Confidential. And this week for the grand finale, we are joined with Bill, Calvin, Lisa, David, and Ben. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command, and uh, I'll leave it at that. It's been an eventful week, but I don't care to discuss it. (laughs) I'm Calvin Dyson, and I run a YouTube channel where I make video reviews and uh, and the like, covering the Bond films, books, games, all that kind of stuff. And I'm drinking a vodka and Diet Coke tonight. Mmm. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond, editor of For His Eyes, Only the Women of James Bond, and host of my own podcast Ooh. called License to Critique. License has two C's in it, uh, and it explores gender in the world of James Bond and beyond. And I am, I love how I'm just like, let's get through all that because I, I want to talk about my drink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am drinking, and I just found the name. It's called a Polaroid, and it's basically vodka, blue carousel, and you can mix it Sprite or or 7-Up. And it's yummy, and it's blue. <laughs> Wait. It's called a Polaroid? It's called a... I googled it, and it literally comes up as a Polaroid, and that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll take it. Interesting. Uh, David Lee here. I run the James Bond dossier. I'm author of the complete guide to drinks of James Bond. The complete guide to the drinks of James Bond. And tonight, I... I dived into our wine cellar and I dusted uh-huh. off the last remaining uh-huh. bottle of Fuyuk 74. You stole my joke. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin. Oh, it's me. Uh, hello. Um, I am Ben Williams. I write for MI6 Confidential Magazine and MI6HQ.com, who are graciously hosting this series of uh, podcasts. Um, I am Drinking a, a, a fairly standard martini, um, but with three olives for a change, um, which should go very well with my uh, my painkillers. So let's see how uh, let's see how I kind of <laughs> evolve through this uh, this watch along. All right, <laughs> <laughs> we're all preparing ourselves. <laughs> that forgets the olives that make you fat. All right, so. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, out two of the olives. So, man, we gone, gun. We left it till last to end on a good high note. Yes. Um, David, I don't know if you want to kick off by explaining how and why this <laughs> came about. Explaining yourself. Explaining my, myself. Uh, well, I, well, well, I don't know quite what you want me to explain. Oh. Oh, you told me that in 1974 you became the first member of the Man with the Golden Gun fan club. Ah, yeah. And, <gasps> yeah. and in 2020, you're still the only member of the Man with the Golden Gun fan club. <laughs> I'll join. I'll join. It's free membership. So uh, <laughs> there, there, there are thousands of secret members around the world. It's mm. too bad we couldn't get Don McGregor to be a, a guest uh, watch-alonger. He would probably be puking at this point, though. But. <laughs> 
membership is free, and there's still only one person in there. <laughs> no, no, no. Lisa's joined as well. That's right. I'm it's joining. That's right. It's up to two. Yeah. All right. So as the founding member of the fan club, then you get to do the lion roar this week. That's great. Okay. I've been, I've been practicing all week. All right. So if everybody's ready. Yep. 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 All right. In three, two, one, play. You got to do the UA music for that logo. I only do Ryan Lion Rules. Ryan Rules? Lion Rules are in my contract. Everything else. So it's the first John Barry gun barrel with Roger Moore and no electric guitar because you're not worthy, Roger. <laughs> the fan club has something to say about that. <laughs> you'll have to take it up with John Barry, but you'll have to do a seance first to mention to him. My favorite first, my favorite first line in the entire series: "Knickknack, Tabasco, <laughs> and Guinness and champagne." One of my favorite mm. combos. Black, black, black velvet cocktail. Yeah, which is, uh, as I'm sure David will tell us. Was actually featured in the novel. It, uh, yes, not this novel though. I don't think no. uh, it was. Oh, which one was it? Uh, Diamond, Diamonds are forever. So one oh, of those yeah. ones. Or yeah. if yeah, only yeah, we it, had the if only we had the author of the Jinx and James Bond on this podcast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Wait, so they they mix them? They're going to mix Guinness and champagne together? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's great. It's great. You don't see it on the screen, but it's absolutely yeah. fantastic. That's and if you can't afford way. champagne, you can do Guinness and cider. It's pretty good. Yeah. Hmm. You have to whip all the air bubbles out of it before you put pour the Guinness in. Huh. This is educational. And here we have Mark Lawrence, presumably playing the same gangster he did in Diamonds Are Forever, though that's not specified. And here in the end titles, we learn his name is Rodney. Yeah. But there he is. Yeah. I didn't know there was a pool down there. Hmm. He's not very tanned for a guy that tans every day, is he? Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he just started. Very strong, very strong um, sunscreen. Mm-hmm. This, uh, this room is very kind of reminiscent of the Elrod house from Diamonds of Forever. So mm. yeah. I wonder whether they... Um, you know, they purposely kind of uh, did that. Is this in a studio or is this on location? In studio. Studio, yeah, right. Yeah, so this is studio. The only part of the location, um, Calvin, is is basically a kind of a a bit of dressing to create yeah. a, door, a doorway into the rock. So it's a kind huh. of a cave that they then dressed with a kind of like a set of windows and, a, and, a, and the airlock. Hmm. They they had two directors of photography on this film. Ted Moore, who had, you know, goes all the way back to Dr. No, he had done all the location stuff. And then when they returned to Pinewood, he fell ill and could not continue. So they hired Oswald Morris, who was a very celebrated cinematographer, to finish it. And uh, Morris did a lot of the interiors on the movie. I know that some people bag on this sort of funhouse element 
that is at the core of Scaramanga's um, lair here. I've always found it, again, as a child watching this, so I'm going to look at it through the lens of nostalgia. I've always found this to be quite fascinating that you have Scaramanga who wants to be tested, wants to be pushed. You have Knickknack who is playing and messing with Scaramanga, knowing that if Scaramanga dies, he gets all of his money. And I've always sort of loved the way that they make their way and work their way through through the funhouse. I, I think it's a really cool element. I know other people don't like it, but it reminds me a little bit of sort of the way that you had the training at the beginning of um, From Russia With Love. Like I've always yeah, liked it. I, 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 I'm a fan of the, the funhouse too. And th- th- this is my eight-year-old speaking, but uh, as an <laughs> adult, I, I always say that um, if you, can if, if you ever ever imagine David Lynch directing a Bond film, it would be like the it would be like this basically. Well, and Tom Mankiewicz was the first writer on the project, and on the making of uh, feature on the home video, he said he was fascinated by the by the idea how would a killer like Scaramanga keep his edge up? Because mm-hmm. at a million dollars a shot, he doesn't get a lot of jobs. You know, he's not that busy, so he's got to keep himself in you know fighting shape. So. So essentially, he and Knickknack have this arrangement where Knickknack invites various hitmen to try and take Scaramanga out, and this is essentially his practice. Uh, if Knickknack inherits right. everything when Scaramanga dies, why doesn't Knickknack just kill him? <laughs> right? I think it's a, a very interesting relationship that the two of them have. Because he, he doesn't have enough money to operate the place at the moment. There's rent to pay and all that kind of stuff. He needs him to do a job or two more. Oh, okay. And, 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 then, and then he can be on the terrible, Airbnb. And Scaramanga's <laughs> yeah. a terrible cook, so he needs knick-knack. Yeah. <laughs> I just took it as it's kind of like, a, I'll get you next time kind of thing. Like, this is how, how they banter, I guess. He seems yeah, quite annoyed something. at the end of the film when uh, he goes for revenge on Bond. Uh, yeah. I think it's something like that. Yeah. I and like it though. And apparently that statue was Roger Moore, which I didn't realize until recently. Some people claim it was Roger Moore's stunt double. Okay. Hmm. The same guy from Octopussy? It looks incredibly like Roger. It's the kind of thing they would do. Hmm. Blinking that wax worked. Yeah. <laughs> it's that ow. real. It looks that real. Ow. Don't hold it against me. Ow. It's the carnival of tax evasion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, I didn't realize this until in the last few years. Apparently, uh, Christopher Lee's wearing a bit of a hairpiece here because I saw a publicity still of yeah. them at like the party, and his hair is a lot thinner in that publicity still. Right, yeah. Because you're a I bit of an be- expert in that now, Bill, aren't you? Uh, something <laughs> like that, yeah. I can never decide if I like it or not that this funhouse looks kind of run down in a lot of ways. It's like you can see the tape kind of holding things up and it's like like this glittery gold thing. Like it does look like the kind of crap sort of like hole of mirrors kind of thing that you would find. It's a little bit Blackpool. Yeah, yeah. It's because Knickknack can only reach the bottom shelf. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Have you noticed on the console behind Knickknack they're these um, controls are marked with a punch tape. Cutting edge technology. I think the budget was running thin here when they constructed the set. Much like Christopher Lee's hair for Boom. <laughs> 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 but I don't mind it. I, 
don't know. Like I'm, I'm cool with all of it. I'm cool with it's, seeing, you know, the that that it's it's fake, and I think that it's supposed to be fake because it's a fun house. So right, it's it's very atmospheric that way. Mm-hmm. Can I just say that my driveway is as steep as this set of stairs, and I tried to do this accidentally <laughs> a couple of years ago, and I broke my shoulder and cracked my ribs. No. <laughs> yeah. Oof, I wasn't planning on recreating the stunt. It just happened. Oh, yeah. oh, oh. oh. So here we have Roger Moore pretending to be a statue. Act wooden, Roger. <laughs> oh, Stage direction. Yeah. I Control like your his eyebrow. acting. <laughs> no. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, never mind. I'm. Not, I was going to try and find the line from that critique, but I'll mention it later. Is that a onesie Scaramanga's wearing? It looks like, like an it's athletic clean. onesie. Hmm. Like a jumpsuit. Yeah. Jumpsuit. That's the word. So where did that last shot go? Are we to because th- he shoots four times to the fingers and then one more time and we see the thumb still there? What did he shoot off? So you're saying they had an anatomically correct waxwork? <laughs> yeah. Like our job was like. I'm going to sculpt this completely accurately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it, are you implying it makes no sense that he has a waxwork of a uh... uh, job or knickknack sculpted it? Oh, sorry, knickknack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, it was odd job. Odd okay. job. You know, uh, he did it 20 years ago, and uh, somehow it wasn't odd job. It, yeah. So we're now in the titles, and um, John Barry. This. He had a lot of tight deadlines on Bond films. This was probably the tightest. I think he did the score in like three weeks and then like a, like five wow. days to record it. It was like very tight deadline. Yeah, I I, I know a lot of people don't like the, the score, but I, I know that you've said, Bill, uh, on numerous occasions that, you know, a bad John Barry score is still a John Barry score. And, yeah, uh, exactly. And in places it's it's very... It's very Bond-like, and as you'd expect, so it, it does the job for me. And they all can't be the best. It's like when you do eleven, like you know, someone's you know got to be toward the you know the yeah. lesser one, but they're I still think, great. I think a lot yeah. of the problems with a song isn't so much the music as the lyrics, and for that, it's Don Black. It's not John yeah. Barry's fault. Yeah, I think Don Black is quite guilty of producing shit lyrics generally. <laughs> Sorry, Don. <laughs> and it's funny because, like, when you ask me what the lyrics to the song is, I would say, the man with the golden gun. I don't know. I have no idea well, what the rest of the tune is. Well, you know. One... <laughs> oh, I, know at, at one point, I love this one. At <laughs> this one is point, a karaoke song. At one point, they use bang as a verb. He bangs. You know, just what? <laughs> um, but that might be attributable to the <laughs> tight deadline as well. Well. Mm. But. Anyway, I was about to say, though, I remember seeing the poster for this. I was at my local cinema, and it's like, coming soon, the man with the golden gun. I saw, oh, Richard Maybaum's back. Oh, John Barry's back. Oh, this will be great. Yeah. Well, I, I remember seeing the poster on the London Underground when I was with my dad. And and he was like, yeah, yeah, we'll go and see it. So uh, that was me sorted out. And I've never been the same <laughs> since. <laughs> Oh, and okay, M has one of his best lines in the entire series coming up. Who would pay to have me killed? Oh, who doesn't love this? <laughs> Outraged chefs, humiliated tailors, the list is endless. 
Oh, yeah. jealous husbands. I'm sorry, I forgot yeah. that. <laughs> Can we talk about the gray pinstripe soup with the mm. red tie? I think mm. he looks pretty dapper right now. It's just a tiny bit too big. I think it's the pins like the the width the, the, the width the between cut, them. The cut's a bit too big. Mm. I think it's, it's almost like it's almost like they tailored it and then he lost ten pounds. Well, mm. like Daniel Craig. Also, also ties were real thick in that in that time frame. Yeah, it's unusual as well to see him in a in a double breasted uh, suit. Um, so it's it is sort of a bit of a bit of a switch from maybe what we're used to seeing Bond wear. You know, the classic kind. Of, I mean, and that and that kind of comes down to the the switch in tailors. You know, like Connery's tailor was um, Anthony Sinclair. Um, and um, Moore's was, uh, I believe, Cyril Castle. So the, the you know you do see a, a big switch between um, their, their kind of their tailoring style, so to speak. Um, one of the, I think one of the criticisms that was kind of leveled at Cyril Castle's tailoring was that you used to get a little bit of a bunch at the back of the neck. Um, but um, I do like this. This is I, I do like. Um, uh, it, you know a peak lapel and i do like uh i do like a, a double-breasted suit and this this is a particularly nice one i like the chalk stripe i think it look i think it works very well for him by the way um when uh m said that line the look on roger moore's face was great his, his reaction so that even makes the line even better by bond's reaction he was kind of yeah, like agree. Oh. agree it's an odd scene because you have those two of the guys in there. Mm. Uh, well, one of them's Bill Tanner, and who's the other one? Colthorpe. The, yeah, the guy with the that's mustache. Right. Yeah, it's such a strange. I mean, first of all, you don't, you definitely don't need two of them, and if right. you do need someone else in there, just make it Bill Tanner. I don't know why they have this Colthorpe guy, Colson, whatever his name is. Or later well, they should... bring him back as the uh, the guy that works out where the bullet comes from. Right, and well, that could and... have just been Q, which is really yep. strange. It was, and also. I've a. I'll get in more of this later. In the, I have a copy of the script, but it's like Maybaum's first draft after taking over from Mankiewicz, and like in the script, Maybaum seems to be confused as to who Q is supposed to be. Um, it's weird. It it it's a very odd script. Um, I also point out that I looked at a few official synopsis, and I flicked through a few of the more popular books cover the movies and looked at the synopsis. Every single one says Scaramanga sends the bullet. No. Nope. Mm. No, we don't. Negative. Pay attention, critics. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people on the watch along. <laughs> uh, I wasn't paying attention. So, sorry, James, you said that they said that Scaramanga sent the bullet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I always assumed it was, um, you know, Maud. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's set up in the film that Scaramanga sends it, right? Because that's what they suspect. But yeah, the, yeah, the... yeah, yeah, that's right. But when 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 Bond uh, digs uh, a bit, it turns out that uh, she sent it. Yeah, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. setup. Okay, good. sorry, I just I thought for a moment that there was a huge plot thing that I completely missed mm. all these years. No, it's just that when everybody writes the synopsis up, they also forget that point and just yeah. say Scaramanga did it when he didn't. Yeah, good, he didn't. Oh, Money Penny gets to stand up. She does. <laughs> This next scene always reminds me of the saint. Yeah, yeah do, do you know, uh, so something, something I've got to say about this scene, uh, or not this scene, but the, the bit after, is that um, I think it was in the Man with the Golden Gun book, uh, there is 
a scene. Uh, there's a chapter called Belly Lick, and yeah. I, I so I, I think that the whole thing about getting the bullet from her belly button is inspired by that. Oh yeah, huh. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, the right. problem I have so, with this the, yeah. the, this production is there's no establishing shot of Beirut. It's that's what yeah. it reminds me of the Saint. It's just like it just says mm. Beirut on the bottom, and it's like mm-hmm. okay. And, and the set is terrible. Like this is yeah. the worst floor of any Bond set. I tell you, it, it's disgusting. <laughs> We're gonna see when she when she runs off in a second. I think they show the floor, and it's really yeah. I love the fact, Calvin, that you you are so <laughs> obsessed by the flaws in in these sets. Uh, God forbid that you ever. <laughs> Uh, get on get on a set visit and they're like look at the state of these floors you've <laughs> 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 got, got mark tape down and oh. <laughs> have you done a podcast yet on the floors calvin no no <laughs> I, I, keep, I keep waiting for james to finally uh i think that will be a very successful uh episode <laughs> it, needs to be, it, needs to be a, it needs to be a video essay you know that's true oh, yeah. yes yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in the Maybaum script, uh, Saida was uh, in a bordello. She was a prostitute in a bordello, Thanks rather for- than a dancer in a cabaret. And here are some of the stage directions. Reclining on a... Bond's point of view, Saida. Reclining on a king-size bed, she wears thin Turkish trousers, a short velvet bed jacket, is excessively plump and made and over-made up but definitely not an old bag. Her light, her eyes light up. Uh, then later, Saidi's voice, my lucky charm. Saidi in bed, camera on her back. She holds out her arms, camera in on Bond's reaction. Big things I do for England sigh. Bond reluctantly starting to take off his jacket. This Those are stage this directions. Like an episode of Rick and Morty where, <laughs> you know, he's, he's sort of forced to, listen to that script three, <laughs> three weeks later um, but uh, her, her accent's out her accent is out of lolo i reckon yeah <laughs> yeah definitely is uh so we've got basically the saint meets lolo which is what every film should be kind of <laughs> for. oh it's such a weird scene oh well at some point you can see the crew oh, in the mirror yeah, <laughs> that's just it. it's the cheap sets. It's the kind of like this is really you have a magnificent abdomen or whatever the line is is just terrible. <laughs> it's ugh, it's like why wouldn't she know what he's up to? He's just trying to take it out with his hands. So like ugh, yeah, <laughs> you know. And who are and who are these guys anyway? Like I mean, yeah. yes, I know I know Bond has a lot of enemies, but like it's just it's. <laughs> I don't need a lot of explanation, but just something. Now <laughs> uh, oh, here's the crew coming up in the mirror. There it is. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, I never noticed that. Uh, now we've ruined yeah. the film. It's over. None <laughs> of the fan club. That was it. <laughs> oh, I woke my dog up with that. I'm sorry, baby. <laughs> it's okay. Hey, yeah. Justice. <laughs> and whoever, whoever these guys are, they sent one of their most overweight henchmen to get Bond. Um, <laughs> well, I think he's the boss because we see him sat down in the club earlier on and he obviously doesn't like it that Bond's making eyes at the belly dancer. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know if he owns the club, if he's... Maybe he's one of the jealous husbands that M was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terrible joke. Sorry. Um, <laughs> 
Oh, my lucky charms. <laughs> How many people are employed by this club? It's crazy. And nobody thought to go out to go after him in through that door. You know, it's, you can... it's one of the few instances of the Roger Moore area where he's bloodied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I like the like I like this exchange with the cab driver. Hotel, Mister. No, the nearest pharmacy. Hmm. I guess I guess he's going to get an industrial strength laxative to get Jeez. that charm out. <laughs> oh, and then like you see the person touch it. <laughs> mm. It was it was scrubbed. <laughs> it was it was scrubbed many yeah, it looks times. Looks like it's got sharp edges. I'm sure that wasn't. Pleasant. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Ah! <laughs> I wonder if that was the, the callback on the Austin Powers movie, you know, this this thing where they, uh, you know, he, anyway, don't worry. He could have vomited it up. There's always that I option. Think, I think it's much more likely that he that he uh, went forwards rather than backwards fast. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a bit of surveying there in the background. That set has a back wall. It's just black, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, the whole thing just looks so cheap. Because because to have a back wall, that would cost more money. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it, people. You're, you're spoiling my childhood. <laughs> you're cancelling oh. my childhood. Oh, this was one of my favourites when I was a kid. Oh. It's, like, it's, it, it, it's like watching the third season of the Adam West Batman series where there's all these sets that are like all this stuff with black backgrounds. Like, well, we don't have any money for an actual set. So there you go. This, uh, this character was was put in there to kind of be like a, a an R, you know, like a, in case Desmond Llewellyn decided that he was going to retire. Hmm. Maybe, like, yeah. Well, well, except Desmond wasn't he wasn't yet sixty, so it's like I don't think he'd been retired. Yeah, I don't know. Who Maybe he wasn't in the, the previous film though, right. right? But I I always attribute that to Harry Saltzman, like mm-hmm. you know, and whereupon. Uh, broccoli this is primarily a cubby broccoli film so i think cubby was like more sentimental along those lines i mean you know mm-hmm. back in uh, license to kill uh barbara broccoli wanted to give uh maurice bender the heave ho and cubby said well no mm-hmm. <laughs> vote is over so i say no mm-hmm. any thoughts on his jacket here Oh, this is the this is the classic safari jock jacket. So when anyone talks about safari jacket jacket, they're talking about this scene. Yeah, mm. I, I, I've got a, an Instagram post on this coming up in a, in a couple of days. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, they did a publicity still of him in this jacket. Yes, they did with uh, Maud Adams and uh, yeah, Brett Eklund. You know, Brett when, Eklund. When, I, when I was a kid, though, I, I had a safari suit. I, I I must have been about I don't know about nine or ten and God knows why my parents bought it for me, <laughs> but I, I kind of loved it and it, it wasn't anything to do with Bond either. It was just uh, don't know. I but, have to say that I have to say that this scene down here in the basement is actually one of my favorite of the film. I mm. like way that bond is in many ways sort of interrogating and asking questions and again i have to go with his line and the way that he says it. i mean he says it very straightforwardly but when he says speak now or forever hold your peace like i can't help but like i'm laughing but i also know that he's incredibly serious like you see a very sort of like he's very stern and he's very serious but he's also being witty at the same time and i don't know i thought i think it's just an interesting blend 
I suspect that was a Tom Mankiewicz contribution. Yeah, well, one of the things. One of the things I remember about watching this at the cinema when I was—I I think I was nine. It was just before I was ten years old. But uh, the—I I didn't get a lot of the humor, and uh, obviously, it's, it's aimed at adults. And mm. uh, my, my dad was laughing his head off at various things, <laughs> and I was—I was, I remember that I was laughing just because people around me were laughing, but I didn't get a lot of the humor at all. <laughs> Well, were you thinking, why are you laughing? This is serious stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, um, I can actually, I, I, um, I'm in sympathy with you, David. Not on this, not in the case of this film, but a non-Bond film from 1966 with the. Uh, well, I, I talk is, about. I think it is laughable. Clarkson <laughs> 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 does not apply to Adam West Batman. I'm sorry. Well, it was vague enough, and it was 1966. (laughs) On the Batman TV show, they did a theatrical film between the first and second season, and my dad was laughing laughing at something. I'm thinking, Dad, how can you laugh? This is serious stuff. It was, 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 in fact, it was the some days you can't get rid of a bomb line. Yeah, well, I was just <laughs> running around on the on the pier with the ball. Yes, that's yeah. what I was referring to. I was not referring. Yeah, so put the klaxon away, please. Yeah. Edit it out. No, I'll leave it. Just in. keep mentioning it because then it makes it harder to edit. No, no I'm not, that's I'm not going to mention it anymore. Just so as as um, casinos go, you know, in the Bond um, over. What do we think of this? It's, it, well, it, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a step up from a bingo hall in Blackpool, but it's not far off. Yeah. <laughs> Old girl was shot on location in Blackpool. I'd believe it. <laughs> I love asking my students, they have to uh, describe the card game and they have to give a name. The number of students who have to Google this film just to find out like what is going on here. <laughs> they have no idea. So I, I think no it's interesting. See if um, we can spot Peter Lamont. There he is. <laughs> yeah. With the long hair and the black on the right. <laughs> is he being um, kidnapped? Yeah. Oh, there he is. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Um, that's Devon Adams. I yeah. didn't realize that. Hmm, I've seen that before. This is cool. That was his reaction when he read the script. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sorry, bad Joe. I don't it's know much there. about the history of this ship, but it's it's just just a really cool oh, visual. Yeah. Some kind of mysterious circumstances got removed from the bay in the nineties, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it 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 was removed before I went to Hong Kong, rather annoyingly. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. yeah. I love, but I love the way that they retrofit it, and when we when we get into that, I think that it's just a fascinating visual about repurposing and mobilizing. It's different okay. spaces. We'll put, it, we'll put it back for our um, Bond uh, adventure land. So, for geography, <laughs> so Macau is the Chinese territory where gambling is legal in China. You can get there on that. That's why they have the hydrofoil to Hong Kong. But Hong Kong's basically split into two, isn't it? You've got Kowloon and then you've got Hong Kong proper. And the places, the bottoms up club that he goes to in a bit, is actually moved from one side to the other um, locations in real life. And I, I, th- I think it's closed now, hasn't it? Oh no, they they moved in, opened up a new one. I I well, I, I, oh, okay, okay. I, I knew that it moved, but I thought after that that it closed down. 
Maybe it has. It's been mm. seven years since I was last there. Where did uh, you say it was located? Kowloon. Ka- oh yeah, because when like, I was there, which was more than seven years ago, it was in. It was on like Hong. I think it was on Hong Kong Island. Right, and this I- is the Peninsula Hotel we're at now. And anyway, just to set up what we're about to see. So, in 1975, Marvel Comics did a, a very harsh critique of this film. So. This is part. This is just part of it, and it sets up this scene. If he was unlikable with Mary Goodnight, here Bond is despicable. Daffy Duck right. would spit the words out of him. Part of the problem is it has become mandatory for a Bond-beating-up woman scene, and here there is little provocation. There is a one-dimensional, callous level now, not even redeemed by the fact he's done many death-defying feats before. More Bond smacks her around when she doesn't talk fast enough, the filmmakers want us to know Bond is brutal or that he can if a situation demands it. Ooh, be as tough be as tough as he needs in order to survive the situation. But this isn't the way to go about telling us, gang. Connery convinced you of his toughness. There was no need to keep testing his masculinity. No. And throughout much of Gun, the Bond character has a hatred towards women that nearly suggests he doesn't find any facet of women enjoyable. Quote unquote. Well, that's because yeah. audiences knew that Connery smacked women off screen, so they didn't need to put it on screen. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually co- contrasts with the, the book where uh, Bond arrives in Jamaica in, in the book and uh, he, he's really happy to find that Mary Goodnight has been posted there. And so he takes out, her out to dinner and so on. And uh, uh, he he doesn't bed her at, at that stage at least. But uh, and t- so... Yeah, that, 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 that is quite a, a contrast with the, uh, uh, you can't exactly call it original or the source material, but. Uh... Can we talk about the, the creep factor about this, though? I mean, no, watching ahead. a woman yeah. while she is, regardless of whether or not she has a gun, but watching a woman while she's showering. I mean, it happens a few times in the Bond films where Bond walks in on a woman showering and, and there's various different contexts, but I always find it a little bit troublesome because there's just so much vulnerability, especially when you're naked and there's vulnerability when you're showering and you don't think you're being watched. And so I've always felt this scene to be incredibly uncomfortable. And then it becomes very violent afterwards. And it is a question of like, I've had people say, but if you are a spy and you're trying to interrogate someone, shouldn't you use physical force? My question is, is the physical force being coded simply as physical force or is there a sexual dynamic to it? And is it all necessary, especially since, you know, there's a vulnerability aspect to it as well? Well, Lisa, I don't think it's just you. I think it was Lewis Gilbert, too, when he came aboard as director of The Spy Who Loved Me. And I suspect this scene when he said, you're trying to make him too much like Connery, like, you know, it's like, let let Roger be Roger. Mm-hmm. kind of sensibility about that film. Can we just point uh, out a major plot flaw here, which is like, she sent the bullet to get him to come to see her, to rescue her from Scaramanga, and here she's threatening to shoot him. Yeah. Makes yeah. no sense. Well, like later on where Scaramanga's like, uh, I've got no issue with you at all, Mr. Bond. You go your way, I go mine. It's like, well, why do you have a waxwork statue of him in your funhouse? That seems to be a bit of a... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Discrepancy, but it is just, you know, multiple screenwriters and, uh, yeah, rushed production. Yeah. I, I mean, in this case, it was two screenwriters, but like, <clears throat> you know, which is like a small number compared to many Bond films, like, mm. say, I don't know, No Time to Die. <laughs> but um, 
But, you know, it's like they're going back and forth and, and the screenwriters <laughs> clearly do not have the same sensibilities. So it's like, yeah, it's only two, but like you've got a lot of different takes going back and forth between the two. Mm. Uh, to, to answer your point, Calvin, I, I would say that that can be explained by um, if Nick Knack uh, put the uh, waxwork of Bond in 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 the Funhouse, then it, it's it's nothing to do with Scaramanga. So he he uh, he can perfectly well say to Bond, "Yeah, just go your way, and I'll go mine." Uh, <laughs> well, then is Scaramanga not alarmed when he sees Bond and he's like, wait a minute, he looks just like the statue in my funhouse. Well, Scaramanga knows about, he knows about Bond, so... Well, yeah. the whole, I think the whole point is essentially that, you know, Bond is the only person that he fears, or he fears it feels is capable of taking him out. Um, that doesn't mean that he wouldn't say, but I've got no issue with you. Um, it would be an interesting film if he just went, oh, all right then, and just left. <laughs> well, I mean, to some extent, Bond is pretty much the villain of this film. This is and probably I, the worst that Bond is, just as a secret agent. Like, probably apart from Goldfinger, in this, like, he does nothing. But and Goodnight and Lieutenant Hip are the same. <laughs> they just fumble around and re really contribute very little towards uh, anything. And it's only thanks to uh, Goodnight's whatever it was, the tracking in the uh, the button, really, that takes Bond to Scaramanga's Island at the end, and then he can finally kill him. But uh, yeah. So, yeah. so tonight you're just dissing all the classics. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I, 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 with Man with the Golden Gun, like it is one of the more well. I enjoy watching it. Like it, I think it is a good enough time, but I think it is deeply flawed structurally. I think uh, I think Maud Adams as Andrea is one of the uh, perfect examples of just how tonally it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. I think she plays the part far more earnestly and well. I think she's good in this, but I oof, well, um, <laughs> yes, that was <laughs> caught me off guard. Then um, bottoms up. That's why it's called that. Yeah. Um, uh, I think if the character had maybe been written more like femme fatale or something like that, but I, I feel really bad for her and how Bond treats her. He is like really villainous, how he messes her around. And she's just this desperate woman trying to get out of this horrible situation. And do you think that, you know, as we're talking about Bond being just a little bit more villainous, very cold, I've always felt that the film is trying to set up a comparison between Scaramanga and Bond, right? That that Scaramanga knows who Bond is. He wants Bond's respect. You see that at the dinner that they have or the lunch they have later on saying to us, Mr. Bond, we're the best, where one man has, like, both men are great killers. One has chosen to do it for queen and country. The other's chosen to do it for a million dollars. And so maybe one of the reasons why he's being presented in this way is to just be, when it comes to Andrea Anders, you know, be just like Scaramanga, right? Have sex with her when he wants to have sex with her, you know, discard her when he wants to discard her. And, just, and it's really about these two men being as parallel as possible. And then it's really about then the motivation as to which one comes out as quote unquote good at the end is the one who does it for queen and country versus the one who does it for personal gain. Like I've always felt mm. that that's what's being sort of set up here. Hence the harder edge to, to bond. Scaramanga is a Bond fanboy. If uh, they had the technology, he would have done a Bond website. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, just, I just looked it up. The Bottoms Up Club, the, re, the redo did actually close down in 2009. You're right, David. Yeah. So it was even longer ago that I was there last time. It was even longer ago. I go for Queen and Country. Uh, also amusingly, in this film, there's Sony product placement, which uh, Sony would later release Bond films. Um, 
Sony also had product placement. You only live twice, but uh, there you go. Come, come, Mr. Bond. We both know you enjoy killing as much as I do. Scar Manga must have a hell of a name because that little handgun is like, I can't have effective range. I mean, it's like. He's going to put his eye out if, you know, at some point. Because all the, you know, that's that's very, far too close to be, to your eye to be firing a firearm like that without getting some residue back in your face. And that is not a euphemism. Um, um, I I, I can't imagine that that is the most accurate weapon either. Yeah. (laughs) Well, also gold bullets aren't particularly a smart choice um, in terms of ballistics. So, you know, but that's another. Well, on on impact, they ought to be good. Yeah, but uh, they are. I mean, they'll they'll obviously, like, spread out and do the most damage that they possibly can do. But it's... um, you know, it's a definitely a short-range weapon. It's a very heavy projectile. It needs a lot of powder to get it to do what it needs to do. I think it's more of a branding thing for Scaramanga, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yes. like you know, this, this, is, this is my thing. I need to do this. Meanwhile, uh, we're meeting Lieutenant Hip, played by Soon Tech O. The spelling would uh, actually vary over the years, but uh, he was on many, many American TV shows. And... Uh, um, he was also in a Matt Helm movie as uh, uncredited as a Japanese agent who gets uh, killed at the start of the film. But uh, yeah, he's he's a very familiar face to American audiences. This is another one of those fake out. Let's take Bond to his briefing, but pretend he's under arrest scenes in the right. new series. Right, and the, and the music reflects that. It's kind of tense. Prince and... Charles did not date Lieutenant Hit though. Oh, no, huh? Prince, Prince Andrew, sorry. <laughs> we, we learned just the other day that, anyway, sorry, that's a, that's a random joke. Um, it was Catherine Rabbit, by the way, the yeah. blonde in the uh, Living Daylights that dated oh, Prince Andrew. <laughs> yeah. yeah, shocking. Oh, oh and we're, ba- we're, we're about to come up on, uh, okay, Scaramanga has some sexual issues as he's about to uh, take out his golden gun with Andrea and Caress her lips yeah. and all that stuff. Like, ooh, okay, this guy's got some issues. Also, yeah. has a nice line in brown sheets. Yeah. Playing with his junk. That's right. Yeah, no wonder she wants to get away from him. I guess that's the purpose of this scene. What are those walls made out of? Is that suede? <sighs> it's uh, a lot of brown. It's what they, it's what they could <laughs> find in the prop room because they were probably at this point with the. Uh, Set construction. Um, And by the way, the production designer here is Peter Merton, who had been the art director under Ken Adam on Goldfinger, if I remember correctly. But yeah, so he was a Bond veteran. You know, Ken Adam wasn't available, wasn't doing Bond films at this point, but they were trying, doing their best to kind of keep the Ken Adam set design going. Also, the turnaround time on this film was incredibly short. Oh, yeah, because um, in, oh, I mentioned this on a previous watch along. So at the Academy, 1974 Academy Awards, Roger Moore made an appearance where he's introducing uh, Live and Let Die's best song. And he makes a point saying, I'm about to go out and start filming my second James Bond film, The Man with the Golden Gun. So this is like in, that was like in March 
maybe the very beginning of April. So that's like a very tight time frame for Christmas release. Well, and they'd only just released Living Let Die. In, in um, June. Oh, those of, are the days, uh, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Before we right, move and- too, too far past the scene that just happened, I just wanted to sort of point out that oftentimes when we see kept women in Bond films, so whether it's Andrea Anders with Scaramanga, whether it's Dominor Durval with Largo, there always seems to be just a scene that is suggestive. It doesn't actually fully show it that there's some sort of like intimate partner violence that happens and usually it's sexually driven. So Largo utilized like ice and cigarettes to burn Domino and he seemed to get pleasure out of it. And here you have um, Scaramanga utilizing again, an external thing that he is, is sort of con- connected to and that being his, his, his phallic golden gun and her looking scared. And I think it's a way to sort of vilify these men and possibly suggest the women's desires to leave them eventually. Also, remember in Thunderball, Largo also had mirrors on the ceiling in his cabin in the Disco mm-hmm. Bellati. So, like, there's some stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. How are the bottles staying on that wall? In that, but why are they loading the bar up? Right, because when... <laughs> the new one was coming tonight. <laughs> That's, That's what right. I was going to say. Damn you! <laughs> I, I told the steward liquor for <laughs> ten. <laughs> I didn't know Ben was coming. Um... <laughs> I, I, I think it's a, a great and impressive and slightly surreal set. Yes. Uh, which I, I really, I do think it's, it's unusual, even within the kind of the bond um, over to have, have something like this. Um, I think it would make a great addition to the uh, James Bond theme park. Um, yeah, this, this is the hotel lobby at the James Bond theme park. I remember the Golden Gun theme park at this rate. I would just say it's an example of imagination um, brought on probably a limited budget and tight uh, production schedule. So it's like mm-hmm. very visually striking. But it's not a super expensive to make. It's you know it's obviously not a uh, you only live twice volcano. Uh, they blew their money on this set. They so did. My yeah. root set was just you know. But yeah, 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 yeah it's, you, it's you, they, you, they, they, they could, the budget was so tight they couldn't afford a spirit level. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it wasn't but, deliberate. But cinematic innovation, if you look at it historically, not to just sort of get into film history, but usually lack of resources is where you get the most innovation. So there was like a lack of electricity and then you get like German expressionism and that's where our horror films come from. You know, and I, I, I sometimes I think that budgets might be too big and you don't have to be creative. And especially in the world, the, this world that we're in with CGI, you literally don't have to be creative on the spot. It's something that can be added in at the end. And so I love the fact that you have to use the resources that you have to come up with something interesting. And I think the result is something like this. It's just, it's a very interesting scene in a visual in a bond film that is not common in other bond films. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've been to, uh, I've been complaining about the the, the budgets for for a while uh, that uh, they that, that they 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 still the imagination and they still they absolutely mm-hmm. still progress. So that, that's the official line of the the uh, the man with golden gun fan club. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how M gets a landline onto a half sunken ship. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, we don't know that. Maybe he's like, maybe they're ahead of their time. Maybe it's, uh, 
you know, I think they, they, a, they had the internet before there was an internet. Yes, but, but, but Ben, you, you, you were saying that this this scene is quite surreal, but also the, the whole funhouse thing is surreal. This is the most yeah. surreal Bond film. Mm. I agree, and I think it's, it's, it's made even more surreal by the psychedelic use of brown. Oh, well, <laughs> well, and just and just hopping on what David just said. So, if you consider this a lesser James Bond movie, there's still things to recommend it. And like you know, the visuals, the sets are, you know, despite you know the limitations of production, it's still very striking. And um, I've said this about the score. It's like I've sat back and listened. It's like okay, let's just assume that it's not Barry's greatest Bond score. Fine. But like, if you sit and listen to it, it's like on the on the edges, on the periphery. There's some interesting stuff, and it's like it's a lot more intricate than I realized. Like several years ago, I was just listening to the score. I'm like, I was watching the movie, paying attention primarily to the music. It's like there's a lot more here than people realize. But you know, the the conventional wisdom is, well, this sucks. No, John Barry, it's like his least great score. Like, but again, as I've said, and David. Site you quoted me. It's still a you know it's it's like saying oh this is a lesser Picasso. Okay, this is a lesser John Barry score. So what? It's still a John Barry score. Yeah, ben, do you absolutely. Want to, ben, do you want to explain the nationalities at play here? I was just about. Oh to God, it's all very confusing because you have a Chinese industrialist. Thank you, Bill, for reminding me that it's an industrialist um, who has a home in Thailand, um, and. Yip, who is um, Hip, sorry, who is played by a, who is a Korean, is playing a Chinese man who is somehow accompanying Bond to Bangkok uh, or to Thailand at least to infiltrate this. It's and, and now to, we, to infiltrate yeah, the base with Japanese sumo, with the sumo wrestlers as guards. Yeah, so it's all a bit of a mess of uh, of kind of what I would just kind of like. Yeah, why? Why are those? Why is the thing wrestlers in a Thai? Yeah, I, 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 I completely uh, agree, Ben. But I, I reckon that the the Bonds series makes this mistake. Well, at least one other time, and, and not not in such a kind of massive way, which is in. Um, Oh God! What's the film after Thunder? After After Moonraker? My mind's gone blank. For your only, for yes, your eyes only. For your eyes only. When uh, they're in Madrid or just outside Madrid, and they they play mariachi music, and so it, it's like uh, it's like the in, it, entire Hispanic culture is nailed yeah. down to, to Mexico, <laughs> and they don't even film it in Madrid either. Essentially, they don't care. They're just going for visuals. It's like, yeah, if you look, if you're Asian, yeah, you're in the movie. Well, Um, I think that's a, you know, that's, but that's a, you know, I I understand that. And I think that's obviously a kind of a. a, I'm not, I'm not defending it, by the way. I'm just saying, that's uh, explaining it. I'm just saying it's, it's the, it's a kind of complete lack of interest in. uh, Asian culture. In Asian (laughs) culture or or, or Spanish culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Real, real quick. I'm sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. I was just going to say that also later on. This is not impossible, but Hip has two Thai nieces, and when they're at the school, which is a karate school, 
uh, rather than a Francisco. Or, or they also have Thai fighting, and the two girls are Thai, and it's set in Thailand, but he's Chinese. It's not. It's very. It's it's just continually kind of confounding this issue. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it 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 gets worse in the Maybaum script that I have. The two nieces, two of uh, uh, Hip's nieces, they actually beat up Chula instead oh, yeah. of Bond. <laughs> like this is it's anyway. Real quick, uh, High Fat is played by Richard Liu, L O O. He was uh, he was born in 1903. He he was in Hollywood for decades. You know, like in World War II, and you needed a villainous Japanese person he was your go-to guy and you know he you know it, it didn't matter he the, the you know it's like you're asian we'll put you in any <laughs> any movie we where we need an asian guy yeah in, in, in fact it, i'm, I'm j- j- just thinking about the, this kind of lack of lack of interest in or lack of interest of, of, of actually understanding any of the details. If you watch any film that's shot in Barcelona, they'll always um, put flamenco in, and flamenco is not Catalonia at all. So, you know, it, it's, like, um, it uh, it's like it's uh, like Vicky Cristina Barcelona, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> it, and it's like that there's, you hear no Catalan in that uh, film. It's all Spanish and it's all flamenco, and it's like that is not Barcelona, uh, even though it was shot in Barcelona. Look. Meanwhile, just speaking about Americans, Americans say, oh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, eh, it's all the same to me. Well, trust me. It's like if you're Korean, you know the difference between Japanese and Korean. You know the difference between Chinese and Korean. Like, trust me, they know. And well, yeah, uh, they had a yeah, few wars just, about it as well. I mean, yes. <laughs> exactly. Oh, hell yes. Exactly. So. But I also just, think that it shows just the sheer lack of general historical knowledge and understanding of what constitutes Asia in a broad sense and understanding yeah. that there's different regions, there's different countries. These countries have their own conflict with each other. And this notion of sort of like, a, it's not even like put together as a fusion. It's sort of like the interchangeable Asian other. And yeah. I think that's a really problematic element. And this film is guilty of it, but there's so many other films that are guilty of just sort of uh, doing this and not understanding the repercussions of it, especially what it must feel like to be audiences in Japan and Korea and China and Thailand watching this film and just sort of wondering what type of interpretation. And if this is supposed yeah. to be sort of a representation of, say, sort of, you know, Brit- Britain's, you know, rendering of geopolitical relations in the world, the fact that you're not even being recognized properly and that there is no understanding really sends a troublesome message that gets, um, I don't want to say just exported, but lots of people get their information about the world through films. Um, and, and I know films are not, you know, supposed to be quote unquote educational, but they do relay aspects of history and things that we might not be able to sort of connect with or places we might not be able to go. And so there is mis- misinformation that is being promoted. And that's why accuracy um, and, and authenticity, those things really do matter in film. Um, you know what? There was a uh, character actor. He went by the ch- uh, stage name of Kai D. He was born in 1910. He wasn't even Asian. He was of he was born in America of Sudanese uh, extraction. Anyway, he was cast as Chinese. He was cast as Japanese. If you've ever seen the original, um, 
was that called? 1962. Frank Sinatra. I'm drawing a blank. The um, the no, I'm going the, the the blank candidate, <laughs> Manchurian candidate. Oh, yeah. He's the he's playing the Chinese guy who's brainwashed the guys, and as a demonstration, listen, I'll have Lawrence Harvey like strangle his best friend just to show you how good our brainwashing is. So like he spent decades playing Asian characters because again, you know, American audiences don't know the difference between the various nationalities in Asia. So um, just a quick word uh, about the school that's going to come up. We're going to see um, it's uh, the location is uh, in Thailand. It's a place called Murang Baran. Uh, it's uh, which translates to, um, I guess like the the forbidden city or not even the forbidden city, but um, ancient city. Sorry, um, and it is basically a um, amusement park of sorts, if you will, uh, which is reconstruction of various temples throughout Thailand, um, rebuilt and reconstructed in one place, so that if you are only going to Bangkok, you can visit the splendors of all of Thailand in one park. Um, but it, it's beautifully, uh, all of these places are beautifully reconstructed. Um, I've sat exactly where Roger is sitting right now um, awesome. from one of my many visits. Um, and uh, it's great because you can use it as a location to shoot in places which you wouldn't ordinarily be allowed to shoot. Right. Mm. Were uh, any women patting you on the head with a cloth? Uh, my my ex-wife. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Just um, oh, Chula. Anyway, yeah, important character. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. I, I, no, I sorry. Say, you, uh, you see that you know again. We're we're coming back to the kind of the the mix of kind of various Asian ideas, and here we've got you know a cross of different kind of martial arts as well, all being kind of played mm -hmm. off as as the one, uh, which kind of really doesn't make any sense. So at the, all. the man with the golden gun invented mixed martial arts. This is this is um this is classically Thai. Um and you know you can often see kind of demonstrations of this being done um kind of like uh, theatrically I suppose at uh, mm -hmm. the place it's uh it's pretty it's pretty cool cool fun. Um why did the yeah, guy in the it, white leave the other knife down on the floor? Like God, pick it up. Is that a rule? I yeah. don't know. Like, yeah. oh, like, yeah. like you're fighting to the death. What rules? I, <laughs> oh, and like all those guys sitting there, like, oh, the guy disemboweled our fellow students. Oh, well, that's great. The student <laughs> turnaround <laughs> at this school must be ridiculous if this is the entry program. <laughs> I think it's also important to note that, you know, one of the reasons why there might be an interest here in terms of martial arts in various forms um, has to do with the Kung Fu craze and how the Kung Fu craze with Bruce Lee yeah. um, and the export of those films and their popularity. And he too was a fusion martial artist where he created his own style of Jeet Kune Do um, way of the intercepting fist and really did dabble in ways that other people really didn't, but dabbled in many different traditions to come up with his own style. And so there was a lot of appeal to Bruce Lee um, and I think you see here in the 70s, the Bond franchise is now tapping into other conventions. The, the previous film was uh, Live and Let Die, and it's got some black exploitation elements in it. And now we have this film coming in and 
trying to tap into the kung fu craze and then we'll eventually get to space epics a little bit later. I also think it's incredibly interesting that the Bond franchise here is utilizing um, references that come from um, non-mainstream, non-say A-level films, but oftentimes those that are either performed or created by racial and ethnic minorities. And I think that's also interest sort of bringing them in, importing them, but then again, utilizing them as a tool to sort of amplify um, uh, what, what we get in this film. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the uh, a question to um, our listeners because I, I think we we talked about uh, Bond tapping into um, different genres of film before, but uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, what was that tapping into? Water. It's Jaws. It's, it's tapping into a thirty-three million dollar uh, budget. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was totally water. It's it's all about you reckon, jaws. You, you reckon it's jaws? Okay, okay. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's why we have all the underwater stuff. Mm. Jaws himself. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Probably you. Said it's not that. as overt as like Moonraker and this and Live and Let yeah. Die, but it, it's totally that. Yeah. Especially when you have a character named Jaws. Yeah. yeah, I'm just saying it's pretty. Yeah. It's a pretty big flag being waved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was too subtle for me. <laughs> <laughs> you just missed it. Mm. This is a good fight, though. It's nice that like Roger's actually doing a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff himself. Uh, I don't buy in one for one moment that he would actually be uh, defeating this man in a uh, uh, hand-to-hand fight. But uh, well, I guess he does just jump out the window, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, if I if I may read the critique from Marvel Comics at 75, whatever possessed Guy Hamilton, the director, to film these scenes in long-distance shots that only emphasize Moore's awkwardness during the combat is oh. barely fathomable. Moore reportedly <laughs> studied Mongolian kung fu for two months prior to the film, but even if Moore were more, grace, were more graceful and fluid than he really is, it is absurd to think that he will look as effective as the student he battles, who obviously has studied the arts for years. Hmm. But I also think that's an important point to emphasize. I mean, this is right before the rise of uh, more action-oriented uh, fights in, in mainstream sort of Western films. And so I do respect spending two months trying to get an authenticity. But I love the fact that the film doesn't play like more could like take out all these dudes. And instead, it's the nieces. And I'm sorry, but like I love this scene because you have these, these young women in skirts and shoes. And you think, okay, they're just the nieces. Stand back. And they come out and they just kick butt. And they take everybody down. And I think that that's probably, I think these are the strongest women who are presented in this film, right? Particularly after they've been all all, out all night partying. And then they come Uh in and do this. And it's like, (laughs) wow. And as I mentioned earlier, like in the Maybaum script, the two nieces took out Chula instead of Bond. So so that idea was floating around during the scripting process. Mm. Yeah, I think... uh... Well, they'll be oh, what right, so can we discuss this? <laughs> oh, overly polite and like like gets stranded because he's overly polite. <laughs> Is that what's going on? Yes, he, he closes like, the door and yeah, then because and the, and, he's like letting them in first and then goes around the side, but then Hip drives off like oh. But Hip looks behind him, which is really—I guess Bond's in his blind spot. It's yeah, uh, it's a horrible, horrible. <laughs> it's, it's it's silly. It's yeah. it's this is the humor overwhelming. I love the... it. I yeah, think it's it, awesome. It, it, it's like Benny Hill meets 
Bond. <laughs> it, it just makes no sense. And it's obviously and, there because we, we, you know, we need to get Bond into the boat and then that's the next action scene. And it's just lazy because they just can't even be bothered to think of a good enough reason. He just drives off, even though it makes no sense. I, I don't know what his nieces are saying, but I assume it's like, why are you driving what? off? Like you're <laughs> leaving him behind. Well, well, meanwhile, we're about to see J.W. Pepper for the right. first time. Before, and in the Maybomb script, this is his only scene. It was right. like, okay, Maybomb's mm. like, okay, I have to put in because Cubby t- tells me I have to put him in. So, but that's the only that's the only J.W. Pepper you get in the Maybomb right. first draft. And Can I ask I'll... a question? Is like, what's a Mexican screw off? I've tried to look this up over the years and found no reference to what a Mexican screw off is. <laughs> I, think there, I, I think there's a saying Mexican standoff. One time, is it like is it like either. is it like messing up that oh oh the kid the kid <laughs> no, <laughs> just, set, I just setting a trend for the fate of kids in Bond films. I, think I just Googled Mexican screw-off, and the first thing that comes up is a Bond forum with the tagline, right. a quote I don't understand. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is definitely saying Mexican standoff. Oh, I yeah. wonder that's if they like... shootout. I mean, that's the whole yeah. end of the good, bad, and the ugly. But um, yeah. is, is it just a bad pun that makes no sense? You though? know what? It's, I think, it, it's, I think it, it is, yeah. It, it's like why... Um, J.W. Pepper identifies himself as with the Louisiana State Police when he isn't. He's a county sheriff. You know, just it's it got mistranslated in the various drafts. Uh, I, I've got an elephant that looks almost exactly the same as that, except it doesn't have the base. Hmm. I, and I did so buy it in Thailand. Is it, is it, nowadays, it'd be a royal Dalton elephant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. There he goes. Goodbye, kid. Exhibit A, why kids should not be in James Bond films. Mm, spoiler. <laughs> be interested to try and find that kid now. He's, you know, maybe that's what Daniel. If, that, maybe that's what Daniel Craig meant when he said there's some things in the Bond series we haven't done yet. He's <laughs> he he's sapping. <laughs> the kid is sapping. I've been after you for decades, Mister Bond. So I have a question for Calvin, who's a big J.W. <laughs> Pepper fan. Um, oh, God. You know what? I just think I saw it. Oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just think I saw uh, Michael G. Wilson. Um, so t- what do you think about his return in this film? Because I find oh. it to be a little bit intolerable. But do you think that it was, you know, there was a popularity of him and they wanted to just repeat it? How do you read him? Or do you like him equally? I would I would just love to have a different opinion other than my own loathing. Well, ooh, okay. So personally, I love him. Like, I could just watch this oafish uh, nonsense all day and find it <laughs> hilarious. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it makes no sense that he's here. And I think it more speaks to Guy Hamilton's sensibilities. He's had sort of bumbling American sheriffs in, you know, a couple of previous movies as well. So this is obviously just speaking to his sense of humor. He gets something out of these oafish American mm-hmm. characters. Um, I think it's quite telling that they feel like they need to include him here and particularly in the car chase later on, they don't have faith in James Bond to carry a car chase, basically, by himself. He needs to have some comedy sidekick along with him. Um, mm-hmm. But I love that he's there. I think he's hilarious. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they uh, brought him back for this one. So if, if we arranged for you to go out with him for a night, what would you think about that? Well, I, I wouldn't want to do that. 
But then, I mean, <laughs> I mean, look, I mean look, look, at, look at my favorite comedy characters. I wouldn't want to go out on a night with Malcolm Tucker from The Thick of It, Jill from Nighty Night, Basil Fawlty from Fawlty Towers. Uh, I, I don't, Victor Meldrew, One Foot in the Grave. I, I don't tend to sort of, my favorite comedy characters aren't likable people generally. They're, they're people that you're, you're kind of laughing at rather than with, I suppose. Uh, I guess, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, for me, I've got Thai family, so um, I do. You know, yeah, the por- the porny head line has never sat particularly well with with me um, mm. because of that. Um, so, but uh, I, I I agree. I, I I think it's I I, I think to put um, J W up there with Malcolm Tucker is 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 a bit of a stretch, but. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I was just alluding to other comedy characters that I like, um, who are also not nice people. I mean, Jill from, have you ever seen Nighty Night? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, she's like one of the worst characters I've ever seen in uh, in any kind of media, but uh, yeah. Yeah, seriously just, funny. I would also say it's probably a bit of a downer spending an evening with the corpse, because Cliff and James passed away some time ago, so... I was talking about the character rather than the, the actor, but the uh, point taken. But yeah, and, uh, and, and Calvin, Calvin, I, I wasn't expecting you to say, "Yeah, you'd love to go out with that 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 uh, guy for an evening." Did I say that? In 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 the oh. Maybom in the Maybom script, there you know it's it's a local Thai person who's with Bond on the car chase, and the gag was. He's not reacting. He's just like, you know, very serious throughout. And then at the end of the car chase, he says, I'll buy the car. That was Maybaum's <laughs> take, humorous take. Um, instead of. I'll buy the AMC Hornet in Bangkok. Yeah. That yeah. <laughs> Can I talk about the gun that is being assembled to murder the man in his presence? I yes. kind of love this scene. Like, just Scaramanga is just so bold that he's like, putting the pieces together. I want that gun. Um, and just sort of like having this conversation and then getting ready to murder the man. And he's just completely unaware. I've always found that to be just a really fascinating element of him. One of the funny things about the gun is that um, I remember the, the summer before the man with the golden gun was released, uh, there was an article in, I, I think it was probably the Sunday Times or something like that, and uh, we were away on, on holiday, probably in Norfolk or somewhere like that. And my dad got it and he said, oh, look, uh, there, there, there's this um, article on, on on James Bond, because I, I was already into Bond because of the books and I probably had the Corgi DB5 at that stage. And the article was th- this uh, golden gun and how it was made from these component parts, and so it was a bit of a spoiler, really. Mm-hmm. There you go, David. That's your that's your vintage. Ah, yeah, I'm, that's, that's what I'm drinking. Yes, it's the, the last bottle on earth. Is it actually a wine? <laughs> No. I, I, oh, I didn't think so. I was like, I, I, I you just, you say it so, so straight. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe it is. No, I, at least uh, I, I don't think it is. I think it was just there as the joke. If there were a real Fuyak, it would be like a uh, uh, expensive collector's right. item. <laughs> you mean you don't have the factory entertainment replica? <laughs> oh, you do. From the, from yeah, the yes, I have it right here. Mm. From the Bond store, $1,200 a bottle. Mm. <laughs> Worth every penny. 
I'm sorry, 1,200 pounds a bottle. Okay, right, yeah. Well, I live in wine country. Now I need to go and talk to a wine producer and tell uh, yeah, we're going to do this. <laughs> mm. This is weird. Just going back to um, how we were talking about Bond and how he behaves towards Goodnight and Andrew in this film. Like, this is like, he's been nothing but sort of dismissive towards Goodnight, irritated by her, like, quite visually. And here he's like, well, I've got nothing better to do. So now he just turns on the charm and really cringily awkward. Like, I, I really, I, he does a lot of gurning in this installment that's quite unappealing. Yeah. And I'm totally with her when she's like, nope, I'm yeah. going to bed. And yeah. then she ends up in his room anyway, which is really disappointing. Because, in fact, this really is from the book. I mean, there isn't much from the book in the film, but this is from the book. But um, Bond is absolutely happy to see her when he's in Jamaica and uh, mm. takes her out to dinner. So, yeah, completely different. He, he treats her completely differently, and it's it's harbour side just like this. But uh, um, mm. I, Bond, uh, well, as I haven't read The Man with the Golden Gun for a while, but as far as I can remember, he's perfectly nice to her. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad that it's one of the only things that's kind of taken from the the book, to be honest with you. There's got a lot of very, um, for want of a better word, stupid stuff that happens in the, in that novel, um, particularly um, Scaramanga jumping out of the wardrobe. You know, <laughs> ah, and they just and they just go well, no what what are you talking about and then he goes okay then well just I've got an eye on you and then just leave. <laughs> uh, he should have been in the closet in this scene when like Bond puts Goodnight in there it's like Christopher Lee's just there. <laughs> isn't it nice? Isn't it nice to have a different color than brown? <laughs> yeah, it is. got this nice teal thing going on. It's nice that Goodnight packed her coordinating nighty. I hate how. Room. Bond like lifts up the bed sheets and then gestures towards the bed like who does that? Nobody has ever done that. Nobody has initiated no, fornication nobody, nobody's, with nobody's that done that successfully. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so more from the Marvel Comics critique. But the candor has little time to go further as Andrea shows up at the at his door. Bond hides Mary under the blankets and does a weak Rock Hudson act with Andrea. Parentheses, remember Doris and Rock and Lover Come Back? While she tells him that it was actually her who sent Bond the golden bullet with initials. Aha! So even Andrea knows how to send mail to Bond. Lord knows what else she knows. Well. <laughs> Maybe he was listening into. She was listening into Nick Nack and Scaramanga talking about Bond. Hmm. That is a nice color blue, isn't it? Um, I also, um, you know, the costuming is kind of like a lot better <laughs> as we've moved along. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, well, the film so, gets the film gets on. The costumes get better. Yeah, uh, I do like Mary Goodnight's um, outfit when we first meet her in in Hong Kong. It's very it's a very cool kind of timeless outfit, and this uh, and this dress here is uh, more what Adams is wearing is. Uh, very chic so, it's very yeah, stunning she looks it's gorgeous very, yeah so i think you know that there are elements that kind of um elevate the film uh the brown boat is probably not, not one of them uh but this is quite nice in this scene i have to say i mean there's a lot of things about this film that i like the scene 
Um, just in terms of, of the treatment of women, not necessarily a fan. Um, when you have a woman in your bed and you stick her in the closet while you have sex with another woman and, and the woman who's in the closet is somebody who truly wants to be with you. Like I just, it doesn't feel very good. And I get doing it for queen and country and all of the justifications, but it's never just like, I can't justify it. It just feels. It's, it's basically bedrooms and corridors kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, comedy really that they're attempting to do and I don't think it lands I think it you know once upon a time it was the kind of the you know one of the hallmarks of kind of like British carry-on kind of style humor Um, and and British TV and British TV I think you know that there is a there was a sort of a tradition for it um but uh as you say Lisa I don't think it necessarily works um for this or, or indeed, at all anymore. Well, Rock this Hudson is... was better at it in Lover Come Back. Well, this is particularly awkward because she's essentially prostituting herself to Bond. As like, I'll sleep with you if you kill the man that I'm desperate to get away from. So there's, I don't feel like there's a romantic element to this at all. And yet Bond's all like gurning at her and like, uh huh, yeah, I'm gonna get this on tonight. And it's like, I just feel it's a really icky, horrible situation. It's like, do you not feel any sympathy for this poor woman at all who has done nothing remotely villainous throughout this entire film except just desperately sort of like want to get away from this man who's and and also and also when Andrea leaves, then he tells Goodnight, oh, it'll be your turn, darling. Like, yeah. oh no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 but uh, as Ben was saying, it, it, it's, it's like carry on bonding. Mm. Yeah, and I think that the, the interesting thing is that you know when they made um, when she's they made got, she's got more clothes on now than what she had on two minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she put more clothes on. So when um, when they made Skyfall, it's a very kind of a similar kind of thing as mm-hmm. you were saying before about um, you know a woman who basically just wants to get away from her her captor, and the, the difference is that you know, quite a few decades have kind of come and gone between then and really the way it was handled probably could have been handled, well, should have been handled differently. Um, so it's like they didn't learn anything from... It was, from, I mean, I mean, had Money Penny been in the closet on that boat, it would have been the same. <laughs> right. But it, 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 actually, it's funny, the comparison with Skyfall, because, um, you know, it, it's... Uh, the uh, silver is sometimes compared with the Scaramanga, and I think rightly. But mm-hmm. uh, I and, and thinking of Scaramanga from the books, but in fact, uh, it looks like they've taken some elements of the film as well. Yeah. Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, this whole this whole element of um, her bringing him, you know, bringing Bond to Scaramanga is. is very much the same thing as um you know bond being brought to to silver so you know there there are definite parallels to be made I don't know how you can fall asleep standing in a closet <laughs> <laughs> mm. have you tried she's sitting on a little um set of drawers in there so i'm sure she was quite comfortable Dread to think what she heard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this is so gross. Like this is really. Oh, I hate how 
smarmy he is, and he's always trying to kiss her, and he's been smoking. It's just like, oh, it's just so icky. Uh, yeah, but that's not all he's been doing. And also, yeah, just like it. I mean, it is just caddish behavior, which is something that you know we're not really sort of used to from Bond, really. Yeah. Uh, although there, as we've discussed many times before, there have been definitely. Like there's definitely precedent for it, but it's just it feels out of it feels not just out of character for for Bond, but very out of character for for Roger, mm. you know. And you know he's he's playing against his own type in a way, yeah. Um, and I think it you know it's it's interesting how we didn't feel we didn't start to get kind of really comfortable with it. That's another great outfit that she's wearing there. Uh, we didn't really start to get comfortable until he started to play to those strengths. Do you think that he's trying to be more Connery? Like just sort of like pushing away from a bit of his persona, pushing away from some of his previous um, television roles, whereas Connery was a little bit more, um, uh, he was just a harder, right? And he was kind of brawny. And, and I feel as though like there's the goal here is to just sort of add or have have him be a little bit more sort of that sort of serious path. And then once he becomes a little bit more humorous, once he starts becoming more of himself, I feel as though he shines more. Lewis Gilbert thought so. And um, and it actually, in terms of Moore's first two films, there's a definite kind of split personality because in Live and Let Die, they made a uh, decision, let's, like, let's not be Connery. And then it's like in this film, yeah, let's be more like Connery. Mm-hmm. But even if Connery was doing, like, if Connery was in this doing this script, it would still feel uh, too much. I, yeah, I, I, I don't think, I think they're just writing it really extreme. Mm-hmm. And I think Roger's the kind of actor, you know, he'll probably just do the script uh, and, and do it to the best of his abilities. But I, he can't play this kind of character. Yeah. Mean, meanwhile, everybody talks about the Roger Moore safari suit. How come no one ever comments about Christopher Lee's safari suit? Because mm. uh, this is the second time he's worn it. it he was wearing one what? when uh, he bumped off high fat. Now he's wearing it again. It's not strictly speaking a safari suit, though, is it? It's kind of... It's as, much, it's, it's as much as the one that Roger Moore was wearing. Well, I don't know. It's got... Mm, you know, there's some classic kind of elements that like patch pockets and epaulettes and things like that that are um kind of missing he's, i would say he's got a black knitted tie though he does um and this is where the film could basically have ended yeah <laughs> you go your way i go mine i've got the solex ah off we go yeah, <laughs> yeah it could have been, could have easily ended here and um that would have been not too bad a too bad a thing would it <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs> um, I wonder how many um, organizations the CIA and MI6 have had to infiltrate so they can like put put people in working jobs as covers. Yeah, chi- a Chinese guy selling nuts yeah. at a at a Thai stadium. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Deep undercover. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's like the FBI infiltrating white supremacist groups in the United States. 
Oh, Pepsi there. Bit of a, bit of a switch up from Moonraker. Um, well, don't forget Connery's, that, that Terry O'Neill photo of Connery in front of the Coca-Cola sign saying the real thing. <laughs> yeah. Times are forever. Roger's under the Pepsi sign says, you know, sorry, would you like a Pepsi? Double oh seven up. And <laughs> that's actually really funny. Did they ever use that? That's a brilliant. Roger Moore, the Uncola. <laughs> <laughs> With assistance from Baron Samity. <laughs> All you've got to do, Mary, is get out of there and the film's over. Yeah. It's literally that it's it's not dissimilar to um, to Diamonds of Forever when you know um, Jules and John gets into the into the cab with Blofeld. It's you know it's, a, it's sort of an unnecessary kind of extra element to just get the plot moving forward a bit more. And I just think you know it's when you've actually kind of gone we've we've exhausted the main narrative of the film. So what are we going to do? In, in the novel, Bond actually asks for Goodnight's opinion about the situation in the Caribbean. And she gives an analysis, which turns out to be incorrect, but, but clearly she is informed about what's going on in the Caribbean, that like Castro is having his struggles. And so, like, but in this movie, it's like, yeah, yeah, like she's like an IQ of 20 um, at times. Um, and, doing the exact wrong move and getting captured in uh boot of uh Scaramanga's AMC car in the middle of Thailand. I don't know but what his like... motivation is for taking her. Like uh, Andrea isn't around anymore, so mm-hmm. is that it? Uh well, she's snooping around um I don't know. It who knows. <laughs> it just feels weird that he's like you go your way, I go mine. Let me take this colleague of yours. Yeah. But it feels as though the women are being, especially like in the early 1970s, they're just being sort of, they're just being dragged along in these films. Like there's, there's, I think we're questioning, like, what is the purpose? Like, you know, why did Jill St. John's character, why was she at the end in a bikini? And now I can ask the same question. Like, why is Mary Goodnight going to be just sort of, you know, laying around in a bikini on, on the island. And maybe this is just a way to go so that she can be on the island and become the next kept woman in a bikini. And I feel like mm. these women are just being dragged along without like a really like strong purpose. Whereas once we start moving on into later seventies, then you see women as agents, women with um, who are pivotal to the narrative, right? Like Dr. Holly Goodhead, you need her in order for well, there to be a successful mission. So just the early seventies, I think that there's just a lack of like really strong substantive women. Um, well, that's why, in my opinion, that Barbara Bach and the spy who loved me made such an impression mm-hmm. when we did the recent watch along. It's like, I was thinking, well, this, she's not as impressive as I remembered, you know, when I you know watched the movie at age 19, but at the time it seemed like a big leap forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, but again, it's in the context of the times, like, okay, triple X was not necessarily, the, you know, it's like she pales in comparison to other women characters later, but at the time compared to Goodnight, like mm-hmm. like compared to Tiffany Case at the end of Diamonds Are Forever, Tiffany Case was tough at the beginning of Diamonds Are Forever and then like regresses <laughs> the more you get into the film. 
And scholars have know. sort of theorized that in, including myself, <laughs> that in like the 1970s, you really saw this media-driven backlash against feminist gains. And in some ways you see this in the Bond franchise, whereas villainous women are sort of just depleted from the series. Like you really don't have strong villainous women like you did in the 1960s. And then you had, in a sense, the centering of, of the Bond girl and, and sort of his central love interest. But it's really a narrative about domestication where he remains the primary hero and the woman is just, just sort of there as, as, as the love interest. And this is something that I think is really seen in the early 1970s. And I think you're right, Bill, you see them break away from that. And so compared to, you know, Mary Goodnight, Anya Amasova really was capable and competent and holding her own, even though she was a little bit absent from the climax. And then you see Dr. Holly Goodhead playing an even stronger role. And I think you see sort of the building up of, of, and strengthening of women as the seventies go on and, and, and moving on forward. By the way, real quick aside, J.W. Pepper spits into his handkerchief and then wipes his eye. Like, oh. no, that's not very hygienic. <laughs> Sorry. That just, it's just like gross looking. If the coronavirus I mean, has taught us anything. <laughs> yeah. Learning about hygiene. He's screaming out of that car window. He's. Am I the only one that gets any pleasure out of this at all? No, I, I like Pepper in this. I just want to point out that Guy Hamilton has not shot a good car chase. Yeah. Little finger, not great. Um, diamonds, awful. Live and let die. <laughs> In the New York sequence, not great. This terrible. Mm. I mean, mm. it's, well, well, what's the, the weakness best of car chase in a Bond film, though? Well, but well, but but we should give a shout out to W. J. Milligan, whose crew was doing the doing this chase, and the, which climax, which will climax with the thing across the bridge. But uh, it's yeah, better it's than like, Spectre. They they were they were ill. Yeah. They were ill they, no, I agree. <laughs> he I mean, away, he, 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 is, is there a chase. really good car chase in any Bond film? Serious. Spy who loved me. Yeah, Spy loved me. Yeah, yeah I'd yeah. say that. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. second place. Oh, there's Clifton like hanging out the window. Oh. I love this. <laughs> it's like he must have had a comb over going the way his hair is blowing. It's so weird. <laughs> Why is this a Bond film? Uh, <laughs> Why is this a Bond film? Yeah, <laughs> it's just so bizarre at this point. Um, but I kind of love it. I never thought so of myself remember, as a. Uh, remember, Ben's word is surreal, and he, he's right. <laughs> I never thought of myself as a uh, expert over about comb overs and hair pieces, but I guess I've become mm. one. You'll never see you'll never see Thailand so free of traffic as you do. Oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> I interviewed the then head of AMC um, about Bond product placements. Generally, he talked about it. it's like yeah, like the numbers like they made sense. Like I signed on for it. Then I told him about the alleged figure for the car placement for a. Dino the other day said, oh, that's ridiculous. It was reported like $35 million. Um, that's anyway. Yeah, it was a commitment for the marketing spend. It wasn't like they right. wrote a check for $35 million. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, but, but yeah, but the guy I interviewed was head of AMC when this was filmed, and you have all these AMCs. In the Maybomb script, it's a Ford, but... Uh, I guess he assumed, well, Ford's always in the Bond films, but AMC won the bidding. This is, I mean, I know we're all 
pretty much if you're if you're a Bond fan, you're pretty much in agreement at this being one of the best stunts in the in the series. Um, but you know, it goes. I mean, it shouldn't go without saying. I have to say, it, it is just a stunning stunt, and the oh, way mm-hmm. that you know, the, the the way that they dressed the the ramp and everything is just. It was filmed on June 1st, 1974, and they had divers under the water. Okay, oh. And then you have the slide whistle <sighs> to ruin it. But, and that was a John oh, Barry thing. Yeah. That was, you know. Yeah, I love the slide whistle. It's so good. Just, <laughs> oh, it, it, it's the best, okay. the best thing that John Barry did, honestly. And even he regretted it. So the fact that you like it, I've never met anyone who likes it. Oh, wow. I, I never thought this day would come. No, maybe I was, John. Uh, sorry, maybe I was John. Being sarcastic. Maybe, oh, maybe John, oh, maybe John Barry sorry, got sorry, the uh, idea from uh, <laughs> our, uh, from In Like Flint and Jerry Goldsmith did a slide whistle. Mm. I know, I, okay, let, let me rewind. Uh, for for me, when I was an eight year old, I didn't care. It was it was fine. Uh, yeah, but uh, it, I it, think, horrible. I think it's like the Tarzan yell or the tiger stick. You know, it's there worse. are lo- <laughs> there are lots of things. That, um, Kind of get thrown in there. I, I, I can I can forgive this more because it was my first Bond film, but uh, yeah, I can't forgive it because it is like the whatever the Tarzan yell when he's swinging through the jungle. That's a, a whatever stunt. This is like a real showstopper, yeah. like mm-hmm. perfectly choreographed, just wonderful bit of work, and it's ruined by by that. And I think that's the problem that it is this fantastic moment in the film that is just dragged down. Calvin, would you like to see a slide whistle on the GoldenEye Dam jump, for example? (laughs) (laughs) The longest slide whistle. (laughs) (laughs) Not even as a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we we we, hang on. We 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 need the Ben remix. Mm. I think uh, I think there has to be. If we could just we could just name the top ten Bond stunts and just put slide whistles over the lot of them, that'd be great. That's a good idea. <laughs> in in real life, after they did the jump, Guy Hamilton said, "I think we should do it again." And people are saying, "What are you talking about?" I said, "It's too perfect. It's too smooth." But the guy who did the jump, and he was like laying down in a black suit so you could, you know there was like a dummy bond and a dummy sheriff he's like laying on the floor with hand controls to operate the brakes and operate the gas pedal and he says i am not going to do it again and it's just like no and it's you know it's like he i mean it's the most amazing stunt in the film and he could have easily been killed and they had all these safety precautions and it's just the fact that anybody could even think that maybe we should do it again like no <laughs> You know, it's interesting. JW has that moment where they go, "Don't be silly, boy. That's one of those now newfangled car boats." And then the next film is <laughs> right. one of those newfangled car planes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was just a random thought. Not the way they, just, um, they they look, they're just kind of relaxed about the takeoff. Yeah. <laughs> so this was like a three foot long model that they flew. Yeah. Right, because this is John Steer's farewell to the series. And it's like, he did this model. It's like, this is the one film where you have both John Steers and Derek Meddings working on the same film. And, um, yeah. These are going to be, you see, whoever trains these uh, police to be calm under pressure, they should should come to the States. 
Whereas JW is the perfect example. As to why they need to come to the States. (laughs) (laughs) Another Sony product placement on the walkie-talkie. This is such a weird moment. <laughs> like this, this just like why isn't this a deleted scene at oh, night? No, I, sort I, of getting I, the thing open. Yeah, I, I, I agree and I disagree because uh, I, I remember I remember watching it the first time and it was great. So <laughs> at, at least they took the trouble to get. At least they got the the trouble to take some footage of a Bangkok for the back projection, and it wasn't yeah. like Hampshire or somewhere. That <laughs> <laughs> is true. Yeah, that's probably why it ended at, up in the film. And also, this this might have been uh, Bernard Lee's like best non <laughs> just just look. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> with his eyes was, wide open. <laughs> that was a that was a spectacular shot, Bill. I I agree that was that was fantastic. And to your point, Cohen, I also agree. It's like they've spent money on this back projector. Yeah, all the money's on screen, <laughs> even if it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> I would totally right. trip. Sorry, I was just gonna say, I would. I, I would. Be, I would have been face down. I would have hit that side little thing. Anyways, continue on, Calvin. You're you're awesome. Uh, no, I was saying. <laughs> I agree. This basically just looked like those sort of like houses that you see. Like we've been on you know vacations in Florida and such, and you see like upside down houses and that kind of thing. And yeah. that's what vibe I get from this. But just about M, like he is completely right to be so. Like he's probably angrier than he ever is in um, any of his eleven films with Bond, and it's completely understandable why this mission has been a complete cocker from uh, every angle and uh, I'm not surprised that he's really annoyed with Bond it's like yeah you literally yeah. had the thing and now you don't uh, yeah. yeah right but meanwhile here's an example of what I meant about John Barry's score this is a great piece of music mm. it's, I, like, it, I it's based on the main theme to the film but like it's like the visuals the music it's wonderful and it's like okay it's not the best Bond film but like it's this is an example of it still has things to recommend it. And this think, is a perfect I think example. We'll, I think we'll see this little moment echoed in no time to die. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you're right, James. I think there's, there's going to be some, uh, there's some callbacks that are going to happen. And, um, but I do love that over, overhead shot flying in. We got a, talking of flying in. Here, here comes the, here comes the Mike Pence fly in a moment. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> Once you see it, you'll never unsee it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I was just agreeing with you both, but I, I was on mute, so uh, you didn't hear it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love, I love these shots. Uh, it's just some, such a fantastic uh, bit of uh, film. Such a good location. They came back again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great, great location. Uh, it just looks stunning, and uh, and the music's fantastic. Yeah. Meanwhile, this guy is kind of like, oh, by the way, uh, you've got a got a guy coming in, and Scaramanga is like, okay, well, watch it. But like, it's just the kind of the laco- that laconic Chinese yeah. guard, you know, yeah. at the stage. It's like, oh, Scaramanga got- can't remember what he ordered from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> no, he won't be leaving. A great line, though. Mm. It is a great line. I agree, Bill. Um, and and also. In 1974, there was a syndicated talk show in the U.S., the Mike Douglas Show, 
And the format was Mike Douglas would have a co-host for, you know, someone be there the entire week. So in 74, Roger Moore was his co-host and he had a bunch of people from on one of that episodes that week the from the, from the uh, man with golden gun. They had Clifton James. They had Hervé Villachez. They showed this clip coming up of Nick Knack with the champagne and Scaramanga shooting the cork out. And like, you know, so like I said, I was hyped to see the movie because I was like watching the Mike Douglas show when they were promoting this. Has has anyone been to this island? Ben? Um, Well, here's the thing. Um, I've been to Thailand upwards of probably 12 times. Mm -hmm. Um, And although uh, I have been out many times and, and, to this region i've never been to this particular island because mm. it's i don't want to my dad you know cause my 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 dad lives there and has for the sure, last yeah. Yeah, yeah no I I, I I i know i know you i know your connection uh to thailand yeah, so, right. which is why i asked well the reason i say it is because my dad's been there many times um over the years mm-hmm. and he's just, he's just explained to me just how kind of how much it has changed in that time and in a way, I almost don't want to go to. I, don't yeah, want to I, 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 I get that completely. It's kind yeah. of like never meet your heroes. It's mm. like yeah, don't, don't go I, to I this think, iconic place because it looks like crap now. Yeah, that's kind of. I, in my mind, it's this perfect place, and there is a curiosity. And I've obviously I've been to a lot of the, the Bond locations, but I think this is one of those ones that I don't kind of want to. I don't want to look behind the curtain on this one. So, that's to answer your question, David. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's uh, that's a good answer. Yeah, there are there are places here that uh, that they're very popular with with tourists, and they look fantastic in the photos. But if you go there, they're just full of tourists. So yeah. why the hell do you want to go there? I would, I would go. I would love to go to this island in the era in the era that this was shot. You know, uh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Or, yeah. Although obviously we we hear some of the you know, the terrible stories of um, rampant dysentery that ran through as they were, as they were doing this. And obviously, uh, you know, I'm sure that um, many of the fans listening are, are aware that they had to keep flying out, you know, keep coming out to this Island every day to shoot. Um, and their accommodations were not good. They were all very, very ill. Um, and getting in and out to this location to shoot was quite, quite tricky. So, uh, how much of that was Cubby's meatballs, though? <laughs> Real quick about that clip. Like I said, that was the first clip I saw from the film, the one they showed on the Mike Douglas show. And when Scaramanga shot the gun, it was like a regular re- gold-plated revolver. Now, I had read the Man with the Golden Gun novel. I thought, oh, that's great. That That's just from the novel. So at that point, I didn't know about the uh, the real golden gun that was made, you know, made out of, you know, the pen and the you cigarette case. You didn't get the Sunday Times, that's the problem. Right. Well, I was living in America, so, yeah, I didn't. And you didn't <laughs> subscribe this... to the Sunday Times, Bill, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Is this one of the more forget- f- forgotten sets of Bond? I was just about to, to, to say, James, one of the things I like about this is this is really beautiful blend between what Derek Meddings has done in his model work for that initial establishing shot and the right. actual set design. And it's very rare that you kind of see those two things kind of marry up as well as they they do in 
this particular film. And I think because it isn't a Ken Adams set, mm-hmm, you know, it mm-hmm. does get a little bit forgotten, but I think it is a very impressive, um, yep. you know, in, yeah. in, well, and, and remember on the poster, like the way they drew it, they were like, there was an explosion on this set and there were like two guys recoiling from the explosion. Whereupon in the movie, there's like one henchman that runs the entire set. Like, okay, and, and well, you know the Scaramanga's budget is not, like low. You know, Scaramanga is not a true villain because he's got handrails. Which <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> doesn't help um, in the overall thing because it's literally just one thing going wrong that destroys the whole Base, isn't it very much like, <laughs> like don't accidentally drop you know a pine nut or something into the into the mm. I think you... oh go ahead oh, go no no go ahead lisa i was just gonna say how much i actually just love christopher lee in this movie and how mm. much joy he seems to get and how he wants bond's approval so much and i love all mm-hmm. the scenes from here to the end uh especially the duel coming up just because what he wants so bad is the validation of bond and he's showing and just the way that christopher lee is playing it i find him to be incredibly like i connect with him and i find it very very endearing so i just wanted to give love to christopher lee there mm. that was just my comment uh, Nick Knack, Nick Knack, right now is doing a uh, update to Scaramanga's James Bond website. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very big microphone. I'm I'm hosting James Bond this afternoon. Oh, I'm so excited. This is James is the. Uh... Like we don't see this because we're all on, you know, in our respective booths. But that's the control room that James has <laughs> for, for editing uh, these podcasts. Except I've got a chair. Because I won't be able to stand for that long. <laughs> Sorry. Well, Nolan, right. uh, help dress this set. So. <laughs> yeah. That's right. No this, chairs. This movie came out on US television on ABC in, I think, May of 1974. It was like, I remember the ad in TV Guide, newest James Bond film. This would have been like a few months before The Spy Who Loved Me came out. Like, whoa. It was, they were hyping it. It's interesting, isn't it, that you can have two, you know, like a, you know, the protagonist and the antagonist are basically kind of like these middle-aged, out-of-shape guys. Um, you probably couldn't have a film now where the, the good guy and the bad guy were, you know, as, shall we say, slim as these guys are. Um, you know, they'd have to be kind of like Channing Tatum kind of buff in order to, to be playing the heroes. Mm. and and villains, respectively. I have no idea who that is, so... <laughs> somebody, somebody, uh, well, it's like sort of Chris Hemsworth kind of physical strength kind of thing. You don't you, you don't often see kind of people who are kind of, shall we say, not, not in the best shape anymore. Um, you mean well, rea- it's, realistic? It's, it's not even best shape. It's like, like normally thin. Yeah. It's like they've got to have six-pack abs. It's like... The Wall Street Journal did a uh, feature story about five, six years ago about this, and they like had stills of like Kirk Douglas and Gregory Peck, and they're like thin, they're very respectable build, but they don't have six pack abs, they don't have big Peck chests, and that's mm-hmm. you know, and then they and then they also had a still of I think it was Ryan Gosling with his like massive you know pecs and six pack six, yeah, six mm. pack abs. <laughs> That's what that's you know it's gone to that in the last decade or so. 
Mm. I had a flatmate who was very obs- very body, uh, you know, he'd go to the gym every single day and this kind of thing, very obsessed with sort of bulking up and all this kind of stuff. We were watching like one of the X-Men films and Hugh Jackman comes out and he's looking, you know, all ripped and veiny and everything. And he's like, oh God, why can't I look like that? And I was like, Hugh Jackman dehydrated himself for five days for like that one <laughs> shot. He literally didn't drink water. Like it's, it's not a... Yeah, I, I I I like it when it's like this, and it is just like you know blokes who are you know I wouldn't call them out right. of shape well, necessarily, but they're you know. Um, but no, also but compare compare Hugh like Jackman bellies or anything, is it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but but compare Hugh Jackman with his first X Men movie with like his later ones. It's like oh, yeah. mm. he's athletic, but he's not like you know he doesn't have these massive muscles the way he does mm. later and that's how it changed like i mean you look at like pierce brosnan in 2002 to craig in 2006 and it's like oh yeah no it, there is a yeah change that happened there yeah, I, I, yeah, just, just quickly whilst uh, we're, we're actually seeing scaramanga take the pen out um i've seen this shirt in real life and um it didn't have a like a hole for the pen to go in so they literally just cut behind the pocket Uh, a little hole so he could stick the pen in through the top of that uh, shirt flap there. So just uh, bear that in mind. It's a pointless thing to point out, but... um, It's what I do to all my shirts. Cut a hole in it (laughs) so you can stick a pen through the top. Um, Can I also raise a point about the sun gun that we just saw? Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of the laser and the technology and just sort of a reminder of what was going on at the time. You had the energy crisis of the 1970s, petroleum shortages taking place. There was a lot of concern for, in a sense, fossil fuel based economies, what the future would be. And so having the solar power, it means something. It might not mean something to us now right. watching it, but at the uh, time, it was a, a, a very sort of like timely thing that was going on. And I always find it interesting that in the Bond films, when it comes to renewable energy sources and anytime they try to like harness stuff from the sun, whether it's with diamonds, uh, there's a lot of diamonds, um, or here in this case that they do create, they tend to weaponize it after the fact that the villains are not just utilizing the technology, but they're showing that the technology could be utilized for nefarious purposes. So I just wanted to sort of highlight that there's a lot of context at the time as to why this would be appealing. I think that's that's an excellent point uh, to make, actually, because it's easily forgotten. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I was brought up in the UK in the... Uh, well, 60s and 70s and early 70s, we used to have power cuts all the time. It, it was mm-hmm. crazy. Uh, so yeah. absolutely, yes, the, the the energy crisis was a real thing. Our friend AJ calls this movie an eco-thriller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels weird that it's Scaramanga's scheme. And this is a problem with the book as well, because you have this whole thing about him being a hitman and an assassin, but... Uh, you know, at th- this point, it's the ninth film. What was it? The 12th full novel. So you need to give him something more. He can't just be an assassin. He needs to have some kind of grander scheme. Right. And in the book, he doesn't have the whole laser and the Solex thing and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't feel natural to the character. And it's weird, really weird, particularly when he points out, you know, he doesn't understand this science stuff earlier on, whatever. And yet this is his thing. It It's really strange. And it's always felt yeah, kind of tacked onto this character. I agree, Calvin. It doesn't seem um, naturalistic at all. It should just be the the fact that he is a mortal threat to Bond that mm. would create the, the the necessary kind of like tension and dynamism of this film. 
um, to kind of put this thing on that he doesn't even really believe in anyway. Mm. Uh, he doesn't believe in it. He has no real understanding of the technology and how it works. And yet this is his kind of grand thing. It, it just seems quite out of character, really. Yeah. And there seems to be this trend of vilifying environmental sustainability that happens early on. And eventually I'm going to do a project on this. I, I'm not there yet. But like I remember I recently watched the first Ghostbuster film and the villain is the EPA. Like the Environmental Protection <laughs> Agency is the actual villain. I remember watching I'm like, wait, what? Um, and I think it's just interesting the way that there's a, there's there, there, there are these representations in a variety of films coming out in the 70s and the 80s where even if you don't understand the technology, it's being associated with like villainous purposes. And in many ways, I would probably say that similar narratives have been made probably in the last few years about yep. renewable resources and, and trying to really still push fossil fuels so i don't know how much it's changed in films and someday when i have a lot of time i'm going to do a project on it i just i'm not there so i think everybody who's listened to this will know that they cut a scene here of scaramanga throwing his uh bond throwing a molotov cocktail at scaramanga and saying i know who you win is because you cheat mm. and they cut that out so it's left to the audience to work out that scaramanga wins by cheating well, oh, yeah. it's it's in one of the teaser trailers, isn't it? You can actually see clips yeah. of that scene anyway. Um, which in the final I think, film, you're not, there's no explanation as to why Scaramanga has just disappeared. It's because he's ran off, which is not the rules of the duel. Well, I mean, in in the final film, it plays like this is a fair fight. Um, yeah. If anything, Bond cheats by taking on the guise of the waxwork. Uh, so it's. Uh, yeah, and I don't know what that does. It makes me feel almost sad for Scaramanga in a way, whereas if you know that he was cheating, that would have been an extra layer of sort of villainousness because uh, we don't like cheats, obviously. So, right. whereas now it's like, yeah, I don't know. This is a really good point, Calvin, because one of the things that um, Fleming always wrote in his books was there was always these confrontations between, you know, Bond and the bad guy, and it was usually over, you know, whether it was cards or whether it was golf. Um, you know, it was it was about the honor of playing fairly and not cheating, right? Mm. Um, and so here we here we see the only time in the series where, technically speaking, it is a fair fight, and Bond wins by cheating. I so, don't read it as cheating, though. I mean, you have Knickknack up there, sort of manipulating the game, you know, playing with the elements, and Bond does the same thing. Bond sees the structure for what it is, and he he's still in the game. He's just utilizing the underlying structure, going underground, and then coming up and like manipulating Scaramanga, who's been through this funhouse. We saw it in the in in the opening films. Scaramanga is the one who actually has like the advantage, the home field advantage, yeah. and with Knickknack supporting him. So I always thought it was just Bond is just more clever. Bond uses brain and brawn, and he finds his way through a situation to be successful. And if it's life or death, well, I, I, I agree. I agree. You know, um, essentially with that uh, mm -hmm. analysis, in, in the sense that he is utilizing his environment better and and kind of thinking outside of the box so to speak so in in a sense that it is his wits that mm -hmm. manages to you know save the day um but in you know considering that it was supposed to be a, a sort of a a fair duel i don't know um, between equals yeah 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 i think I that's what say, bothers Scaramanga, me Scaramanga cheats first yeah he does that's true well 
I don't know. I think it's it, there's a level of detachment there because it's Knickknack who's sort of controlling all this. Like Knickknack feels in charge of the funhouse, and I, obviously Scaramanga knows his way around and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. It's weird. Maybe it is just the dual setup because you think it is like two men, two guns, and that's it. And then there's all these complications. It's yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just the look on Christopher Lee's face as he like falls to his death that is just kind of sad and uh, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's that feeling that we should relish the death of the villain, right? Like, haha, you got what's coming to you. And in this mm. film, I do, f- I really like Christopher Lee's character in this film. And so I do feel bad for him. I feel sad for him. And mm. I'm not sure if that's the intention that they were trying to get across um, in, mm. in, in this film, trying to balance the two characters. Yeah, I agree, actually. Yeah. Yeah. How deep is the cave in the rock? And it's just bottomless. I think it goes down into like yeah, hell, basically. <laughs> I was about to say Hades, yeah. <laughs> he even has time to get changed, which right. is impressive. I was just wondering in that shot. He had the fingers shot off that we just saw. So he's Scaram- just curling, curling him in, isn't he? You know, he's curling him in for. Well, mm. I mean, yeah, you know what? It it doesn't make any sense. So. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just thought Bond changed the jacket rather where than does, changing his entire outfit. Where does he hide the uh, mannequin? <laughs> <laughs> He drops it down the hole. He drops it back down the hole with his gun. He could have gone like, (laughs) faked his own death. It's in Hades. Scarmanga's getting a little nervous. If you think Bond gets changed quick, clearly here, wait till you get to Octopussy with the the gorilla suit. Hmm. And the clown outfit. With With all that makeup. And goodbye, Scaramanga. He's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> but I loved you, Mr. Bond. Pick <laughs> up the gun. Take the gun with you. Who's, who's <laughs> going to take care of my website about you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and goodbye, goodbye, the henchman. Like, what is his name? It's something like Kronk or something, isn't it's it? Kronk. I don't know what his name it's is. Kronk. Kronk. It is literally the Kronk. sound. The sound yeah. when she hit his head made a Kronk. <laughs> so, so okay. So she does away with the henchman, but then Bond still manages to find time later to uh, lecture her. But can't you read signs? Absolute zero must be maintained. Even though absolute zero is physically impossible. Know, but, yeah. You know. Um. Yeah, it's it, like there are in terms of like villains' deaths. That's a pretty quick one. You know, it's it's him and Boris get get off pretty lightly. I think being plunged into liquid nitrogen is pretty much instantaneous. Boris Johnson in, in liquid nitrogen. Oh, I love that yeah. idea. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I meant I meant Grishenko. Oh damn it! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're talking Bond. Sorry. Okay, but yeah, but the point being that like one guy's body like can like turn the whole whole uh, contraption. To crap. Should have had more handrails. Yeah. That's right. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. 
come on. What did you think was going to happen? Don't you believe in science? Yeah, there he said it. <laughs> and he's lost half of the American audience. Well, well, well yes. <laughs> so, so thanks, good night, for taking care of the one henchman that I had to deal with otherwise. But uh, yeah. you, you're still, like, annoying me. So as we're about to see lots of shots of um, Brett Eklund's ass, um, bring up the casting. Apparently, um, Cubby Broccoli wanted Anne Turkle to be the lead in this movie. Who was married to Richard Harris, if I remember right? Yeah. And the notes I've got say that um, Richard Harris began orchestrating her career, which is why you've never heard of Anne Turkle. Oh, <laughs> oh she was in, uh, she was in the uh, She was in the uh, made-for-TV, 1975 made-for-TV movie, Matt Helm. Yes, she was. Um, so... Apparently, Cubby Broccoli went after Britt Eklund after seeing her in The Wicker Man. <laughs> but, yeah, I bet he did. Yeah, but she was three months pregnant in The Wicker Man, and she, uh, apparently Broccoli was quite disappointed when Britt Eklund <laughs> turned up thinner than she had been in that movie. Well, because she um, had a body double in that for all of the nude dancing scenes, and I'm, I'm guessing that's what, what uh, yeah, raised his uh, attention. <laughs> um, but it was only her from, yeah, shoulder up during that yeah. sequence. So the quote we have from Britt was, um, Cubby thought I was too thin, so he'd take me to Italian restaurants and watched over me while I ate. Jesus. He's a feeder. This <laughs> is freak. her after an Italian restaurant? Like, she, yeah. Jesus. Whoa, okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, I've been to dinner with Britt Eklund, and, uh, yeah, um, I, can, I, can, I can say that that, uh, that, that habit has kind of i guess stayed true <laughs> you you went to an italian uh, we, we, we went to a seafood restaurant and um we ate a lot <laughs> so real quick this is the last quote i'll take from that marvel comics uh critique of the film this is hamilton that pulled out all the stops making us wait with ex exquisite agony as we came convinced that goldfinger really would let his laser slice bond right up the middle even though inside you knew it couldn't really happen, another part of you kept saying that it could, it could, even if you'd seen the film several times. Hamilton does hear what he fails to do in the end of the stalking scene. He squeezes every last second of agony of that passage of the sun, and right at the last second, the very last second, as the beam lances down, bringing life or death, in this case, most assuredly death, Bond pries the Solex agitator loose and drops out of the path of the beam. This is when reviews didn't care about spoilers, right? Back in the day. <laughs> well, well, also this I mean, was this like, would be Stuart Heritage in the Guardian nowadays, but yeah, th this was and and this was actually like two or three months after the film was out. So yeah, there was. You know. Is this the most dramatic use of a cloud in all of cinema? <laughs> <laughs> it's right up there. <laughs> Maybe. I think in the list of Bond allies, uh, the cloud really does. <laughs> but I do like it. I do like the fact that he, no matter how much he wants to control, he still is subject to the elemental and that it's something he can't control. And he had a momentary pause with the ally of the cloud, but. God love you know. the shot where Brit falls, falls over trying to get out of there. Cause it's actually going off. Uh, I a two, point bill, this, uh, two point bill earlier. It's, it's a beautiful blend of model shot explosions and practical explosions. 
it's nicely put together, isn't it? Because you know, um, often those often those scales are kind of like revealed when you put two things kind of next to each other, particularly with yeah. explosions or water, and to kind of marry the two, you know, model and practical and make them work is is very impressive. I don't think it's that good. I, well, I mean, you get away with it on TV. Um, like, I mean, look, it's, mm, Meddings comes from Thunderbirds when, you know. Well, that's what I think when I look at uh, some of this stuff. And I guess the aspect ratio, it's like this and Live and Let Die are filmed in this, uh, what is it, 185 to 1 or something like that. It, it It's a, you know, a, a more TV friendly format, I guess. It's not it's like. It's not pure widescreen. Yeah. And and as a result of that, it makes it feel a bit cheaper as a result. Well, I, I was about to say, um, in that uh, explosion when they got around the corner, I've said this before on previous episodes, there's more uh, drama there than in the big explosion inspector, which mm-hmm. was yeah, exactly. the biggest explosion in the motion picture. Like, yeah, so what? Very true. Um, mm-hmm. And now we're about to get to the patented Guy Hamilton's second ending. Which, uh, which Sam Mendes decided to repeat a couple of times in each film. Yeah, and where Bond is menaced by a dwarf that he should be able to overcome with a, a, bit, a whole lot uh, of effort. Tall, uh, on Britch. He's not very tall, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and by the way, how does, how does M know how to call Bond on Scaramanga's yeah. ship? Yeah. He's been tracking him all the time. Yeah, he's, uh, Bond has got... Um, you know, a a rectal. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's like it's like uh, the Wrecking Crew, where somehow Matt knows how to call Matt on, on the train when he's uh, when the mission's wrapped up. He's also got a mirrored ceiling in the bedroom. Yes, so seedy. Yeah, he does. And some CDs, did you say, Calvin? <laughs> <laughs> He was ahead of his uh, time. He's got the best knife. of James Bond. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't bite down too hard, Nick Knack. Yeah. I love that he put in his mouth for all of <laughs> two, two seconds. seconds. Yeah, yeah and, and the wrong way round. I mean... <laughs> yeah. I kill you! I kill you! <laughs> this is such a strange ending. It's like, you could have cut this scene from the movie and, like, nothing would have... <laughs> There would have been no, no problem with it at all. They should have, yeah. they should, they should have put this ending on on Spectre, <laughs> as it was. Yeah. Like you know, Dave, <laughs> just suddenly, Roger Moore suddenly, suddenly appears, <laughs> going after her big film. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been more entertaining. That's for sure. Oh, and good night just being like cowering in the corner. This is just so. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Nick Dack throwing all those balls of Fuyuk 74 at Bond. It was a fortune. Nick Dack, that would be worth so much now. Mm. It's a terrible end for a, a quite a good character. Like mm-hmm. I think I, I yeah. do really like Nick Knack. Like as much as I like Christopher Lee as well, I do really like uh, Hervé Villachay in you this part. You know what? Yeah. What, what would have been a better move? What would have been a better ending is like as the junk is like sailing off. You see like Nick Knack in the foreground, like looking ominous. Like 
I'll mm. get you someday. Like, no, but no, no line. Just saying that, as mm. opposed to this comedic bit, which is not Meanwhile, that funny. Bond, Bond walks back into the room barefoot with glass everywhere. Yeah. Well, well, well. He made a line about about did you clean up the glass? So no, I guess she didn't. Like, it's all over the floor. <laughs> she did it off the bed at least. Everywhere. Like, ah, you know that there's going to be glass in places that you don't want them to be. Mm. Yeah, especially in the sheets. And uh, oh, right but, the here's, sheet. but here's the phone. Oh, here's the phone. M's calling. He's got Scaramanga's unlisted phone number. Yeah, I, I think which, the, which this, this is one that. of the bits where my dad was laughing and I didn't get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like if M had Scaramanga's unlisted phone number, why did you have to go through all this stuff? <laughs> They could have just called him and said, "Hey, did you send?" Um, did you send <laughs> Can we like buy that Solex agitator? <laughs> oh, sure. How much do you want? We haven't mentioned that the whole Enterprise only ever made one of them. <laughs> yeah, and and also like oh oh, I'm sorry. The word the, the worst line. She's just coming, sir. Mm. Yeah, that, that, sorry. That, that's the bit where the, that's the bit my dad laughed and I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say it's like it's back to the back to the scheme. All he's doing is selling it to the highest bidder, right? It's not like it's uh, right. You know, you could just go, oh, we'll we'll put in a higher bid then. But it's not like a because in Thunderball they're very happy to pay the money, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Just pay a bit more money. Pay more money weapons. Uh. Well, there you go. Good night, good night. Sleep well, my dear. That's pretty good, man. <laughs> Thank you. James Bond is here. It is great. Fantastic film. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's my favourite in the series. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't extending you a spot in the family. Can we offer you a membership in the Man with the Golden Gun? Uh, fan club it's a uh, hundred pounds a year that, uh, there's that lead credit stunt corner wj milligan jr the mm-hmm. part of the company that for- why does he get a credit bill before bond does <laughs> because he did more work than bond did oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And James Bond will return in the Spy the Who Loves Me. End credits, isn't it? In the series, yeah. Back in the days when they did go on for five minutes. <laughs> well, there's um, no, there was no like list of eight hundred CGI artists. In this. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, it's one of the advantages of watching stuff on, on Spanish TV. Uh, they always cut all the credits. There wouldn't ever be much there. Um, Ben, you're as, under uh, time, as, time as constraints. Need, Go ahead. As I need to kind of uh, wrap up quickly, gentlemen and lady, um, I, I, if, if no one objects, I'll do my wrap up. But I object. <laughs> um, Sorry, I object okay. too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know, there's not, there's not much to say that we haven't kind of already covered in in the in the film. Um, you know, it, it is. It's an enjoyable kind of romp, um, but I think you know it does have its 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 issues, and I think um, Roger and the writers were still trying to find their 
their bond in Essen. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for that, for that reason, it hasn't really stood out as well as it, it might have done. Um, but I completely understand uh, the nostalgia aspect to this film. And, you know, this is, this is David's A View to a Kill, so I completely understand that kind of connection to childhood and just, you know, enjoyment of it. Um, and I haven't seen this in a in a, quite some time, and I have to say, watching it today with you all was very enjoyable. Um, so thank you. That was it. Well, if I can say something, it um, in real life, this was a big drop off from Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die had a global box office of I've got it up on a tab here. Global box office of. 160 some million. Where is it? Oh, one, almost 162 million. And this fell to almost 98 million. So that's a big drop off. And I've mentioned this before. Um, at my local cinema, it uh, actually, you know, it came out at Christmas, but my local cinema didn't get it till like January of 75. And it was like out for a week or two. And then suddenly it was like part of a double feature with. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, another UA release. So it's like, I remember, I'm, I noticed that. It's like, okay, something's wrong here. Something's seriously wrong. Uh, I don't know why the big drop-off, but there was definitely one. And um, this, was, this, of course, was just before the big broccoli Saltzman breakup. So there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. So whatever. And it was rushed. Very rushed. I think that's the problem for me. Um, if they'd have just taken like six more months with this, like a couple of extra month, months on the script, like keep, if they could have had these same people involved, but just given them more time, I think it could have been something really great. Um, as it stands, like this was one of my favorites when I was a kid. At one point, I would have said that this was my favorite Bond <laughs> film. Excellent, uh, excellent. You are now <laughs> an honorary member. <laughs> <laughs> No, honestly, I loved it, um, and I still do. It's it, well, it's a bit like Diamonds Are Forever, I guess, and I feel like I kind of have to be in the right mood for it. And if I am, then it's just this fantastic two hours of entertainment. Uh, one of my bibles growing up when I was a, a young fan was the um, the Essential James Bond, uh, Lee Pfeiffer and Dave Worrell's book. Um, and in that book, they do cite this as being like the low point of the series or the lowest grossing or something like that. Um, and I was always a bit like, oh no, I try, I quite love it. I think there's a lot of uh, different things in here that work very nicely. Now that I'm, I, I don't know, um, I, I think I can see the flaws a lot more now that I'm a bit older. And uh, you, you'll I think grow out of those. Flaws or flaws? <laughs> Both. I see the flaws and the flaws. Um, <laughs> and the flaws and the flaws. <laughs> uh like you know the the treatment of andrea as a character is well and good night for that matter is mm -hmm. just pretty appalling i think but roger this is his weakest bond performance but at this and, and there are there are screenplay issues good lord like plot holes here and there like it, things just happen because we need to get to the next action scene and we can't be bothered to write a a, a coherent reason for this happening uh, on the other hand christopher lee and hervé villachet are fantastic in their parts and mm -hmm. even though i think that 
Britt Eklund and Maud Adams' characters are underserved. I think both actresses do very well in their parts. I think Roger, ironically, gives the weakest performance of the leads. Right. Um, so it, it, it's highs and lows. If I'm in the right mood, it can be just right. I feel like I've been fairly derogatory throughout this uh, commentary, but uh, it, it is it is one that I can enjoy and it has Sheriff J.W. Pepper in it, so uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's a winner for me in that regard. I, I, w- I wouldn't say you've been derogatory, Calvin. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's yeah. good. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I think you've been fair. Huh. I mean, uh, uh, I've got nothing bad to say about it, basically, but um, I I also know that uh, I'm I I don't have a, a, a an objective opinion about it either. It's just uh, me as an eight year old, and that's it. Mm. Shall I go so we can give David the final yeah. word on this? I, I want to chip in a few Okay, because you love this film, so you get to be we get to end on a positive note. Um, you know, this is a look. I'm a fan of this film. It is a film of my childhood. So again, there's a lot of nostalgia that comes into play in the way that I see this film. You know, the critic in me, the academic in me, does not like the representation of women in this film. I think it's probably one of the weakest films in terms of the representation of women that we've seen in the 60s, 70s, and and beyond. Uh, don't like it at all. Um, and I think that you know, Sheriff W. Pepper, not my cup of tea. Um, and so having him in this film and seeing, you know, Bond's treatment of the child and, and, and some of the commentary that Pepper gives, I think it's kind of racist. And, and, and as somebody who studies, you know, Chinese cinema, I'm definitely attentive to um, the depiction, the representation and the actual character treatment, treatment in terms of like narrative treatment, but treatment in terms of like how characters are treated on screen. Um, I'm just more attentive to that. That being said, uh, there's just something about this film that brings me in. And as a Roger Moore fan, I'd love to say that it's him, but it's not. It's really Scaramanga and Knickknack. I think that they're just a fascinating villainous duo. I find mm-hmm. that their relationship, their friendship, and their adversarial relationship to be quite fascinating. I don't think it's teased out enough. And, and maybe it doesn't even need to be teased out enough. I just find that I'm just very intrigued by them. And I love having a villain who is more humanized than the hero. He's somebody that I connect with. I can see him wanting approval. And I'm sad when he dies. I I I don't know. I there's something about Christopher Lee's portrayal that is just so incredibly endearing, even though he is equally abusive towards women, which I find very interesting. Again, through a self-reflection as somebody who is a feminist and a woman myself, and I sort of watch these these elements, and Bond doesn't come across very well, but Christopher Lee, for some reason, his portrayal comes off more endearing. But I do love the the funhouse aspect. And I know we sort of saw the duo and we were talking about different things. To me, I think that that's just an iconic scene, just watching them back to back, watching sort of the eyebrow get raised on, on uh, Roger Moore as they're going through that process. I've always just found it to be the most exciting part of the film. And so... I think from a critical standpoint, it's a mixed bag. But again, as David mentioned, there's nostalgia that's in here that keeps me connected. And there's elements in this film that I would love to see carry forward into mm-hmm. future films. And there's elements that carried forward into future films that I question why they did. So it's it's a bit yeah. of a mixed bag for me. I think for me, this is one of those like missed opportunity movies. Mm. Um, you've 
casting Christopher Lee as the villain. I mean, it should be a standout tentpole film in the franchise, but it's not. Um, the setup is brilliant. You know, Bond meeting his darker side, other side of the coin, equal match, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about it in License to Kill watch along where Sanchez, there's a lot of elements of Sanchez which are taken from Scaramanga in the book. And I think that was kind of, and we've talked about well, License to Kill as an adaptation of Animal of the Golden Guns in the regard. So they try, they, you know, they got it a little bit better, I think, with Sanchez. You know, he abuses his girlfriend and he says he's equal to Bond and all the rest of it. Um, so there's, it's just missed opportunities all around. And I yeah. think one of the underlying problems I have with it is the stick Asia in a blender and do yeah. that. And, and so I don't feel, apart from Hong Kong, which I've been to multiple times, I don't feel any connection to the locations and the feel and the travelogue because it's, it's not real. It's just all meshed up, hodgepodge, mm. uh, bits of different cultures and locations all strewn together without any logic. So there's nothing to really hang it on. And so it doesn't feel of this world either. Um, added to that, you know, the, the Batman 60s sets with the angles and everything, it just doesn't feel like it's uh, in the same universe as we are to me. So that's my problem with it. Mm. And I, I, this has always been, when we've done the site rankings and stuff over the last 20 years, Golden Gun was always at the bottom for the longest time. I think Diamonds now occupies that spot for me personally. Um, mm. But it's Guy Hamilton has really fell down um, my rankings as a Bond director over the years. Mm. I know he did Andy Golden Gun. hired to do the Spy Who Loved Me initially. Yeah. But the whole thing just as well he didn't, but yeah. Right. Mm. So yeah, and <sighs> clearly it was his direction to make Bond this way in this film because this is not how Roger plays Bond. And I was always surprised when Roger said A View to a Kill was his least favorite movie because that's not a Bond movie. I was like, um, yeah, mm-hmm. Bond in this is a real bit of a dick. And uh, I said it on the watch along. I think Bond is the villain of this movie, mm. um, which just makes it weird that he's the protect. You know, he's the antagonist of everything. Um, mm. So the setup setup itself is false, right? I mean, it's not Scaramanga that's after him. So he's like, that's right. Scaramanga's the hero. Knickknack's doing uh, his Bond website. (laughs) So, (laughs) so uh, we've talked about this many times before. Is it you know a good idea is poorly executed? I think the man with the golden gun is probably the banner film for that. So, by the way, there's two collectibles related to this film. I mentioned one. That's that one Marvel Comics magazine, the Kung Fu magazine with the Neil Adams cover, because, again, it's a spectacular cover. It's like, you know, the Neil Adams version of Roger Moore is definitely more limber than Roger Moore was. But uh, the other one would would have been an ad from TV Guide. So ABC showed this movie first in seven, the spring of 77. They showed it again. 78 or so anyway in the ad in tv guide it says bond goes to jamaica and it's like no he doesn't but then it's like you know i wonder if like the guy who wrote the copy for the ad like had read the novel but didn't see the movie yeah, but it sounds it, like it, it but it got published i remember that i i wish i'd clipped the ad at the time just to so people would believe me but uh it's just such an oddity it's like Probably not a real collector's item, but just it's 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 a weird footnote as it is to the film. Yeah. For for me, uh, 
I've gone on about the man with the golden gun again and again and again on these watch-alongs. And uh, so if you've been listening to more than one or two of them, you, you know that it's one of my favorite films. And it, in a way, it's probably my, my favorite. Uh, it, it's my... Oh, God. Is it my favorite? Uh, it, it, it's my go-to Bond film when I don't know what a, what other Bond film to watch. Hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it, it's uh, it's my uh, principally I, I I'm a fan of of the books and so you know if you want to judge me on that then uh, I fail on that count because it's nothing like any of the books and uh, <laughs> it 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 it's. It, uh, it you know there's very little of the novel there's very little of ian fleming in the film but uh you know it, i just need to discard that uh and so i you know i i if you want me to justify it as a James Bond film, I can't. And like, I can't justify the fact that I, I like Spectre so much. Uh, it, it, both of them have uh, huge flaws. And uh, it, when, I, when I think of The Man with the Golden Gun, uh, I, I, I just, uh, I, I, the, the, the women characters are completely weak and uh which is for for, for me uh, from from reading uh Ian Fleming is the complete opposite of most of the the, the bomb girls or the the bomb women whatever you want to call them so uh it, it yeah it, it's uh it, 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 it's you know when when i watch the man with the golden gun and what I love about the man with the golden gun is watching it through the eyes of an eight year old. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think it it can be difficult to do that, uh, and forget that, uh, films have a lot of baggage attached to them that maybe you don't see at the time, but, uh, it's, uh, uh, I think it's also a useful thing to do, and it's not—it's not something that I think I can do particularly easily with, with any other films. It's just that this one uh, is the one that I do it with, and I'm not just talking Bond. I'm talking uh, uh, right. about cinema generally, and, and and arts generally, and life generally. David, I would just say this: you like what you like, and you shouldn't feel the need to apologize for it at all. You've presented an intelligent analysis of the film. And that's fine. It's like people don't agree on things, so as the that's kids, as the kids say today, "You do you, boo." <laughs> you know what? And, and you know what? If Purvis and Wade, who had been like I don't know how old they would have been at the time of this film, had done a script for this, you know what? It probably wouldn't have been that much different. Except probably Bond would have been carrying around a copy of Profiles in Courage by John F. Kennedy. Like, you know, just to throw out a, 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 you know, shout out to the novel, something like that. 
I mean, here's the other thing. This this film is also based on one of the weaker novels of the series. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. the weakest. So, and then so just yeah, you know, just explain my last remark. Um, at one point in the Man with the Golden Gun novel, Bond is carrying around a copy of Profiles in Courage by John F. Kennedy. It was kind of like a shout out to JFK for helping to uh, boost the popularity of Bond novels in the U.S. And it's like, I think he like tosses it on a bed and opens up to a, happens to open up to a certain chapter, which has a provocative headline or something. So anyway, just. Right, but we don't get Felix Leiter in this film. That's true. Because like with Dr. No, there was no Felix Leiter in the novel, mm. but they talked yeah, 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 yeah. him in. So uh, yeah, they, they, they added, added Felix to Dr. No and took him away from the man with the golden gun. Yeah. So it evens out. <laughs> <laughs> So you've always felt felt about this film the same way, David. Has anybody's opinion changed of it over the years? Oh, I, I again, my, 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 my opinion hasn't always been the same. It, it dipped in the middle, but then uh, because I, I was listening to other people's opinions, so I, I think the, the, there's also something uh, here that uh, you like what you like and don't listen to what other people say sometimes. Completely, and I think we've all expressed like films throughout this series that we all have some kind of a personal attachment to. Certainly, for me, Goldeneye is is what, and the world is not enough. And tomorrow never dies. To be honest, like those three <laughs> Pierce Brosnan ones, because those are ones that I grew up with. And yeah. when I was becoming a Bond fan, those three were the newest. And so there's always going to be some kind of attachment to what you experience in childhood. When it comes to the Man with the Golden Gun, like I say, it used to be one of my like very sort of favorites and then it just kind of dipped down i guess um i still have a good enough time with it though it's also one of the smaller scale movies isn't it there's basically five characters yeah and uh well especially because you have one henchman like running the entire complex <laughs> you know it's like oh once we once once i have once i kill uh Scaramanga, then i just have to overcome one henchman oh good night did it did that for me it's like okay I'm home free. Oh, except the place is about to explode. Anyway. I would right, say so to answer your question, sorry, just to throw it in there. I think that my feelings towards James Bond films, they can't help but change as I become more and more educated and knowledgeable. And as I see them more through an academic lens, that being said, I've always said, you know, we can like things and we can critique things and most films are problematic. Most films have issues with them. And we're never going to find the best or the perfect film out there. I don't think it exists because it's made by people and people have their own biases and people are going to make errors on screen and things along those lines. And so I think what our podcast is, is hopefully showing people is that you can like things, you can critique them, both things can be true. Um and then <laughs> we can just be able to have knowledgeable conversations about James Bond yeah, because this is I, a franchise that spans sixty years. We should be talking about this. Yeah, stuff. I, I, I was, yeah. I was going to say, Lisa, that uh, I think that's one of the, the one of the criticisms of the podcast that I've seen is that mm -hmm. uh, we can't be Bond fans because uh, we criticize it too much, and so that's negative. But uh, I, I don't see that at all. You, you can you can absolutely love something and, and be critical of it at the same time. 
And I've seen the same line of argument for patriotism, this idea that you can't critique a country and still be a patriot. Whereas I firmly believe that if you love your country and you want the best for your country, you should be critiquing what is going on so you can learn from the issues and make an even better, whatever the product is, whether it's a nation, whether it's a film. I actually think that like, critical thinking is important and it shows, it also shows a different level of engagement and being able, it's a hard thing to balance your passion and your feelings and having a critical mind. It's the head, the heart. It's that sort of the division between the two. And I don't think we should be separating. I don't think we've ever been taught how to engage with our media. I don't think we've ever been taught media literacy to understand how our media works. So I think that hopefully we're encouraging people to do that. And if people want to question my fandom, that's fine. But I'm like, I've spent the last 20 years studying this academically. You wouldn't invest that amount of time, effort, and energy into something if you didn't love it. You can do both at the same time and still have fun. Yep. Yeah, n- none of us is Bond fans here. So that's why we all give up our Fridays <laughs> to record these. Yeah, yeah. Game on. <laughs> <laughs> we got nothing else going on a Friday. Oh, speaking of nothing else going on, we've got another six months to go, haven't we? To the films out. So, uh, <laughs> do you want to do you want to do Doctor No next week? Let's go back to the start. <laughs> I think the we should re-watch. break. We should break Casino Royale, the nineteen sixties version, down to about ten different podcasts. Yeah, I think one per director. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have not okay. done every single one film. Mm. No, I know, mm. I know. Mm. We'll get there. All right. We'll put it up to vote maybe next week. We'll go back to voting. It would be the most contested vote in the next few weeks. Uh, hang on a minute. True. Maybe not. Maybe not. Oh, there's, there's a whole ton of stuff. There's a whole ton of stuff. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right. These have been fun. Like, like, sorry, just to say, like these watch-alongs. Like, I know obviously we're at the end of the official series now, so it feels like the end of some kind of an era. But uh, we started this, and James, I think you were the one to sort of spark this, like when lockdown first happened around the world mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And this has become a real highlight for me. Like, if I can get a bit sentimental for a for a, for a mm-hmm. moment, like these Friday nights that we've done this, I've I've really enjoyed it. And certainly, there was a period where it was like the highlight of my week to sit down and watch a Bond film and joke along with you guys. Here's some interesting bits of trivia that I hadn't heard before. Here's some analysis that I'd never really considered before. I feel like it's really kind of enriched my appreciation of these films in various ways. Um, And I'll I'll be grateful always for that. So thanks, everyone. (laughs) Oh, Calvin. I want to hug you. Giving you an over-the- Ocean hug through a microphone. <laughs> well, I tell you what, maybe next week we should do a look back and um, recap everything. <laughs> nostalgia episode. Everything. Mm. Everything. A-, a nostalgia episode is actually very interesting. I mean, nostalgia plays a huge role. I think that's one of the reasons why Bond's so popular is nostalgia. So if we in- embark on it on our own experiences, like, mm-hmm. I hope mm. I remember what we did <laughs> two months ago. I'll make some notes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> prompt. Give us prompts. Yeah, three years ago, we started watching Doctor No. <laughs> it feels like it. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll we'll figure something out for next week. <laughs> thanks for it. Thanks as always. Here's Good a bad copy. Lulu cover to play us out. Great. Mm. <laughs> Bye, everyone.
useful for a little word. And you're full of it.